everybody, and welcome back to Your Critically Acclaimed, the podcast where you're critically acclaimed. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. And you may call me your Whitney Seibold. Please. Because, baby, I'm yours. <laughs> Uh, this is a podcast. This is a podcast that we have here on the Critically Acclaimed Network that is sponsored by our patrons. Patrons at certain tiers have the power to make us do a podcast about pretty much whatever they want. So uh, this is all up to you. And this particular podcast is from a patron named Griswold Cobblepot who asked for something fun. Griswold Cobblepot asked Whitney and I each to present movie recommendations, a long list of movie recommendations, stuff we want you to see, stuff we think is fun, stuff we'll go to bat for, uh, and he wants us to do it uh, alphabetically. So we're going to do one <laughs> per letter of the alphabet. And we're going to steam through these, because this is going to be Pretty quick. Fi- 52 recommendations, presuming there's no overlap between mm-hmm. our two lists. Yeah. And uh, if we were to stop and talk about all of these, we would be here all night. Yeah. And no. we could do that. We easily could. So we'll, we'll, we'll give our thoughts on each one, but we're going to mm. try to make this pretty efficient because uh, the point is we're recommending films. Now, the other thing I want to note uh, at the top of the, of the hour uh, is uh, we currently are doing a semi-regular series of podcasts called The Iron List. Now, The Iron List is every month, but the topic changes every month, and the mm-hmm. topic is decided by our patrons, and our patrons get to make us do a t- competitive top ten list of any topic they choose. Uh, and we are currently, like every couple of months or so, working our way through the alphabet and doing the top ten films that begin with the letter so-and-so. We mm-hmm. just recently did the letter C. Now, Whitney might do this differently, but I decided that since we're doing this alphabetical, you're critically acclaimed, and we're doing these alphabetical iron lists, that I would focus on movies that I strongly recommend, but I probably wouldn't put on the top ten of all time for that letter. <laughs> these are movies that I they might end up on there in the future, they probably end up in an honorable mention if they do. But these are movies that I might not otherwise give as much time to. These are films that I would consider maybe underrated or overlooked for the most part. And uh, But they are films that I really want to recommend. And I like that approach because it gives me an opportunity to talk about a few films that we don't normally talk about. Mm. You know, we, we, we do have our favorites, don't we? Like, take a drink every time you hear us talk about Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, for crying out loud. Like, we just like that movie. <laughs> we do that a lot, yeah. yeah. so we have our favorites, but I'm using this as an opportunity to break out of that. Whitney, do you have any thoughts mm. on your uh, list before we get started? Uh, similar. Mm. Um, some of these are going to be greats for posterity, some of which you might have seen already. But for the most part, I'm going to try to uh, scour uh, some more obscure corners. Uh for the most part, some yeah. of, like I said, some of these are going to be pretty well known, uh, that, but there are, if they are well known, they're going to be particularly dear to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them you've probably heard me mention a lot of times before. Mm-hmm. Some I've reviewed kind of recently. Uh, all of them are films I want you to see, and that's just the yeah. point. Yeah, some of mine are genuinely great. Some mm-hmm. of mine are just kind of weird and funky and genre films. Uh, either way, I think you will you will ultimately get something rewarding out of it. So mm-hmm. um, again, we're going from A to Z. Whitney will do the letter A, I'll do the letter A, B, C, so on, and then we'll get through the letter Z, and at the end, hopefully, Mm. you will have heard of at least a few movies, maybe some that you haven't heard of before, that you're eager to check out. And if you do check them out, please let us know. We'll tell you right off the top of the bat, 
Uh, make sure you follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we also have letters column, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And we might read your email at coming episode of We've Got Mail. Uh, we would love to hear what you thought of some of these films if you hadn't heard of them or if you weren't interested until we talked about them. Uh, that would be really, really great to hear from you. And of course, if you want to sponsor an episode of Your Critically Acclaimed, head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash network. In addition to a wide variety of ex- exclusive and extensive uh, additional podcasts. Uh, you also have potentially the power to make us do a podcast of your choice. So, uh, Whitney, by the way, thanks again to Griswold mm-hmm. Cobblepot for the fun idea. Whitney, why don't you give us your start? What's right. your pick for the letter A? Uh, a. So many films begin with the word adventures. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to start one with uh, with an adventures. Mm. Uh, the Adventures of Mark Twain. Ooh, uh, good pick. Which is a film that I stumbled upon uh, completely by accident on television once when I was young. It is a claymation film, and that is a proper claymation film from the Will Vinton studio. Um, yeah. A lot of people use any manner, use claymation as shorthand for any sort of stopmation. Claymation is a trademark. It was done by, uh, by uh, an animator named Will Vinton. And um, this is, it's a, a wonderfully nightmarish little film. It is about Mark Twain, Mark, mm. who is, you know, a character in the piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course the, the author of Huckleberry Finn, yeah, yeah. Tom Sawyer. Yeah. Martin. One, one of the, the most yeah. famous of all American authors. And, but he coexists in this world with Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer and Becky Thatcher characters from his books. Mm. And he aims to, uh, he rather famously was born the year Halley's comet passed by earth closest and he died the next time it came around. Yeah. And this is about his death. And in the conceit of this movie, he's constructed an airship to fly up and meet Halley's Comet and, I guess, merge with it. Like, he's going to go uh, fly alongside the comet in this, like, fantastical airship. But this is the real Mark Duane. Tom, Huck, and Becky break onto the airship and they cause all kinds of uh, mischief. And this is a really strange contraption that can retell his stories. And he's got like holodecks that can, he can walk onto this like magical elevator and you can live yeah. out his stories. It's really it's wild. All real, really, Su- really. I remember seeing this as a kid mm. and it blew my mind. Yeah. Super psychedelic stuff. The, the mysterious stranger bit where they wander out onto this little planet and they run into an, an angel named Satan. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that, that's so one of the weird. scariest things. And uh, as the movie goes on, you do realize that there's two Mark Twains. There's the sort of old folksy Mark Twain, and then there's this kind of demonic, dark Mark Twain. And we got to see both of those Mark Twains throughout his work. And it's Mm. this really interesting biography, like sort of like character biography of Mark Twain told in animation. Uh, I don't see this coming up on lists a lot. I don't hear it discussed a lot. It's beautifully animated. Yeah. It's really, really strange. It's, it's dour, it's, which I think is one yeah. of the reasons why it's not always recommended for children. I think mm. this. I think this would be a hard sell today. Maybe so. But it's, uh, it, it is quite cynical. But yeah. uh, well, and it's about it's, death. It's about yeah. it's about sorrow. But mm. I also think it's really great. So I totally recommend mm. this one too. I I love it. Uh, my first pick for the letter A is a film that's a really, really fun adventure comedy with a great hook. It's based off of an unfinished. Uh, Jack London novel, and it's directed by the great Basil Dearden. Uh, mm. It's the Assassination Bureau. 
<laughs> I, didn't, I haven't seen the assassination. Oh, the assassination Bureau. Bureau is fun. It stars Diana Rigg as a reporter who uncovers the existence of a League of Assassins. And of course, there's a League of Assassins. Well, and the League of Assassins is led by Oliver Reed. This is like 1969 <laughs> prime Oliver Reed. And she infiltrates the League of Assassins and she goes to Oliver Reed and says, I would like to commission an assassination. Mm-hmm. Oliver Reed says, Sure, anything you want. And she says, I would like to commission the League of Assassins to assassinate. You, the leader of the League of Assassins. And Oliver Reed says, that idea is awesome and we are totally doing that. Because if they can't assassinate me, they have absolutely no right to work here. And now all of his wild, you know, assorted collection of crazy assassins are chasing after him and Diana Rigg. There's a big fight on a Zeppelin. It's great. It's mm-hmm. maybe it, I think it's one of those movies that maybe could do with like a remake to really like expand on it. A bigger budget couldn't hurt this one, but it's a fun premise. The cast is phenomenal. Telly Savalas is in it as well. Just check this one out. Uh, if you feel like you've seen all of the great adventure movies, you need to check out The Assassination Bureau. Okay, letter B. Woo! We're just going to steam along here. Steaming along. Paul Michael... I even screwed up his name. Paul Michael Glazer's Band of the Hand. Oh, you keep you have been talking about this for years, and I've yeah. never been able to sit down and watch it. Please tell the world again because um, it sounds amazing. Paul Michael Glazer uh, made a film in 1986 at, uh, called Band of a Hand. It has uh, an, an impressive cast of young people who are going to go on to big things, uh, like Lauren Holly, John Cameron Mitchell, uh, Lawrence Fishburne back when he was Larry, uh, and it's about uh, a group of, and it's very 21 Jump Street. It's about a group of young uh, criminals like un- underage mm. criminals who yeah. are going to uh, be thrown into prison for the rest of their lives. They're just a, a kind of a, lo- a lost cause. Yeah. And they're about this like ex military guy who decides to round up these criminals, put them through a really stringent military training so they can be undercover cops and infiltrate the local drug ring. Uh, and ba- when they get back from their retreat, they're going to go into the city and infiltrate the local drug ring and be like s- super undercover young kid cops. Hmm. Fun premise for a TV show. Uh, a lot of the TV shows would be fine movies, and this is proof of that. And it's about these young characters who are, you know, at, at risk and really violent and how they learn to actually l- respect one another and have some discipline and become like better human beings over the course of this uh, rather... Uh, Rather fun crime film. So is, is it? So it's feel good, or is it like really edgy, or is it trying to be both? Well, it it was made in 1986, uh, so it's edgy for 1986. So ah. it's actually really slick and kind of gentle by today's standards, mm. but that makes it no less enjoyable. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to go in a completely different direction from my uh, letter B. This is a favorite film of the Bibiani household. We watched this film all the time growing up, mm. and I really do love it. I think it's charming as hell. It's Alan Alda's Betsy's Wedding. Oh, I saw I saw a piece of Betsy's wedding on a plane once. Nice, <laughs> uh, Alan Alda. You know, everyone knows him from Mash, and of course, he's a great Academy Award nominated actor. Uh, but he also like wrote and directed a lot, and a lot of those movies were popular at the time, but they just didn't stick in the public consciousness. Mm-hmm. But my favorite is Betsy's wedding. Alan Alda and uh, Madeline Kahn. Uh, star as the parents of Molly Ringwald and Ali Sheedy. Molly Ringwald is about to get married, uh, and it's all about how the wedding escalates into this gigantic ridiculous thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Alan, uh, Ali Sheedy, I'm sorry, uh, Molly Ringwald is marrying a guy whose family is very, very rich. Alan Alda is doing very well, but he can't compete with that, but he feels responsible for throwing the Mm -hmm. whole wedding himself. And so he enlists the help of his brother-in-law, 
Uh, his wife's sister is played by Catherine O'Hara. His brother-in-law is Joe Pesci. And uh, he says, I need your help uh, putting on this wedding. And Joe Pesci, in the meantime, is trying to get into the mafia. And so he enlists the help of Burt Young and a young Anthony LaPaglia. There's the my favorite subplot. Of, it's this huge fucking cast. And Samuel L. Jackson is in this movie for a second. Like everyone in this movie is a big actor. Um, but uh, my favorite whole bit in this is there's this wonderful subplot with Anthony LaPaglia as this wonderfully stereotypical young mafioso, like the young version of Steve Martin in uh, My Blue Heaven, and he falls in love with Ali Sheedy. And the problem is Ali Sheedy is a cop, and he sees no problem with this whatsoever. He thinks it's just going to be the most magical, charming thing ever. And she's like, no, no, you're really nice. But no, we can't do this. Um, every subplot is a winner. Every sub- single subplot feels like it could be its own movie. The cast is wonderful. It's really delightful. It's really sweet. And um, I, I dig it. I really wish this movie had a bigger audience. So uh, if you're looking for something lighter, something kind mm. of romantic, kind of sweet, family-friendly-ish, mm. nothing dark in it. But, you know, maybe some of the stuff will go over the other kids' heads. But, um, yeah, this is a great film. Yeah. I love Betsy's Wedding. Please check it out. I, I recommend you watch a piece of it on a plane. <laughs> uh, <laughs> What's no, your it's, letter it's, C? It's been one I've heard. It's one I've heard a lot of positive things about. Yeah. Um, uh, my letter C uh, is this was a, a film I kind of regret not putting on my list of the best films of 2019, oh. uh, which was a really great year, by the way. Um, but uh, it's called Chained for Life. It's a oh, film yeah. directed by uh, Aaron Schimberg. It takes its title from a rather notorious uh, exploitation movie about the Hilton Sisters. The original movie was about mm. Um, the Hilton sisters who are in uh, Todd Browning's Freaks, mm-hmm. and uh, they're conjoined they're, twins. Yeah, uh, and in real life, in real life, and uh, the premise of that film was one of the conjoined twins commits an act of murder, and how to incarcerate just one if they're conjoined? It's it's dumb exploitation. It's you know got some cult appeal. This one is uh, about the way cinema tends to exploit those with uh, disabilities. Mm. And how people with disabilities or deformities are treated in cinema. Mm. And it's about the making of a film about a a young woman who goes into an asylum and there's people in there who are disabled or have deformities. It stars Adam Pearson, uh, who you might recognize from Under the Skin. And he uh, has a a condition called neurofibromytosis. Oh, yeah. So he he has a, a facial deformity and he's spoken out very vocally and very eloquently about uh, anti-bullying campaigns. Yeah. Uh, And he is essentially playing himself as a guy who is in the film within a film is sort of this cliched character who complains about how all of these weird things that he's asked, the director's asking him to do the actor, the director, uh, the actor who plays the director is Charlie Cosmo, who was the boy from hook. Mm. He like grew up to be the sort of like, they call him hair director. He's this really kind of tartar uh, figure. And, it, it really, over the course of the film, really starts to shed a light on the way di- the way directors speak to certain actors and the way they don't speak to other actors. But it's also a really kind of sweet little uh, on-set uh, uh, ensemble drama. Mm. Just all of the people and what it feels like to make a movie and how you're just sort of hanging around and talking for a yeah. lot of it. Um, it's really a brilliant film. Uh, and I'm surprised it didn't get a lot more, uh, t- it wasn't more talked about when it came out. It did get a lot of acclaim yeah. and they just sort of fell off the radar and it's actually really extraordinary. Awesome. Mm. Well, again, I'm going to go in a very different direction. Mm. Um, Bruce Lee is one of the great action, uh, stars and mm. it's pretty incredible that he only ever headlined a handful of movies, but there's one Bruce Lee movie that Bruce Lee didn't star in and he wrote it. 
He co-wrote it with James Coburn and Sterling Siliphant, the writer of In the Heat of the Night and the Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> um, okay. And the movie ended up being made after his, after his passing, and mm. it would end up starring Christopher Lee, Roddy McDowell, Eli Wallach, and playing four different characters, David Carradine. He could do it. It's called Circle of Iron. Uh, it is uh, about uh, uh, an adventurer and a, a martial artist uh, played by uh, Jeff Cooper, who is the worst part of the film. I'm not going to pretend he's not. <laughs> he's just not a very interesting protagonist. But he wins this fighting tournament and he sends out on a mission to gain true enlightenment by fighting a series of progressively more badass mm-hmm. people. And Bruce Lee intended this movie to be not just a fight movie, but also a movie that would sort of introduce new ideas into the action movie lexicon. New, more philosophical mm-hmm. uh, concepts of kung fu. It's not about fighting, it is about wisdom. Yeah. Uh, and at the best, at its best, this movie actually is quite a bit about that. It's actually very smart, thoughtful, it has a very fable-like quality, and it's also really fucking weird, and uh, the script got rewritten a lot after Bruce Lee uh, wasn't involved in it, and there's this whole bit about, like, oh, I'm just walking through the desert, and hey, it's Eli Wallach, and he's sitting in a giant cauldron filled with oil, and he's trying to dissolve away his body. For reasons. It has nothing to do with anything. I don't know why it's in the film, but here we are. Sounds Eli like a, Wallach is going to be in the film for a couple of minutes. Sounds like a Jodorowsky movie. It, kind of, it has that vibe. Imagine, <laughs> okay. imagine a Bruce Lee Jodorowsky collaboration, and that's wow, kind of right. the vibe of Circle of Iron. Um, David Carradine is, compared to Bruce Lee, nowhere near as interesting uh, an actor or a martial artist, in my opinion. He could mm. be really great. I think this is arguably one of his best roles uh he's playing a variety of different characters some of which are better conceived and more pc than others but um yeah i do think it's a Mm -hmm. fascinating example of like sort of alternate history where oh if only bruce lee had actually made this and played all those Mm -hmm. david carradine characters this might have been something truly special instead of just this really weird oddity Mm -hmm. that probably would have turned out very different if bruce lee had stayed alive Okay. So, uh, but it's worth checking out. It's certainly very yeah. interesting. It's a very interesting yeah, action movie curio. I think I've seen like one and a half Bruce Lee movies. Like I've seen very few Bruce Lee. I know movies, we watched so Fist of Fury because okay, I forced yeah, you to watch that like a year ago. That's true. Yeah. I've, I've seen that one. Now, yeah, too. That, and I think that's his best work. I think okay. that's it's Enter the Dragon, Fist of Fury, and mm-hmm. uh, then Way of the Dragon is like a solid okay. third for me. Anyway, uh, uh, moving on to letter D. Uh, letter D. Uh, th- this is one of the few times I saw a movie in a theater by myself. Oh. Uh, I saw Ratchet and Clank by myself. Mm-hmm. I saw the Emoji movie by myself. We saw Left we Behind. Saw, yeah, you and I saw, we were the only two in the theater, and I believe that counts. I think it does. We were uh, together. Yeah. I saw the Slammin' Salmon, mm-hmm. the Broken Lizard movie, which I recommend, by the way. Okay. Uh, and I also saw Dangerous Men. Ah, uh, good pick. Dangerous Men is one of the ultimate cult movies. Uh, it was, it began production in 1984, and you know because there's posters for the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics in the background, <laughs> but it wasn't released until 2005. And uh, there were bits in the middle that were filmed in like 1990, and you can tell because there's calendars on the wall and fashions change. This is a mindfuck of a movie. Like, it doesn't make any real logical sense. The The plot begins with a, a young woman uh, is on the beach with her, uh, her 
I'm not sure if it's her husband or her fiance, but he's murdered by a bunch of biker toughs who just happened by, and she pretends to be turned on by that just so she can lure them back to a hotel and murder them, and she goes on this quest to murder all the dangerous men in the world. But then she's out of the movie all of a sudden, and we cut to a bunch of cops who are investigating her and talking about her a lot, so clearly a lot of time has passed, and they couldn't get the actress back, and they're trying to rework the... This is like... Every other, every it's, five minutes, the uh, movie completely changes. Yeah. Uh, yeah this, it's so pe- weird. People go to a biker bar, and when they leave the biker bar, it's like in Le- being John Malkovich, just they're like magically on a beach somewhere. Like, there's no exit. They're just out in the mountains. Uh, there's this really weird comic aside where a, a fellow is stripped of his clothes and is just naked in the desert for what feels like hours. And then uh, the movie climaxes with two characters that we met five minutes before getting into a shootout. <laughs> <laughs> It, it is it is a special kind of incompetence. You do not get to see this kind of a bad movie no. too often, and when you it's do, legendary. you have to hold on to it. It's something very special. It's not as famous as mm. like The Room or mm. Birdemic, but like it's as as completely incomprehensible. Mm. Not just in its story, but in its constructs. Like you thought this was fine. Like you, you released this. <laughs> this, 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 you, this. You were proud you, of this. You thought, you thought this, this was a movie. Yeah, yeah this, you thought this was the whole thing. You know what? I gotta love your moxie. Let's release this damn thing. And it's it's you gotta see it to believe it. It's really incredible. And there's a lot of bad movies out there where you think you're gonna have a good time. It's like, yeah, we'll get together, we'll watch it, and we'll drink and we'll have you know have a couple of yucks. And a lot of those movies are really slow and dull. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them are really gross. Uh, some of them are just a chore. Uh, you and I recently did a, a commentary track for Batman and Robin. Ugh. And that's that's hard to sit through. It's that's not really a, it's long. Not a, I know some people like it, mm-hmm. but I don't know why because it's. Not very well made, is yeah, it? Yeah, like, it's, it's, I, I get what they were going for, but that doesn't mean they did it well. Like it's it's colorful and fast paced, and yet sluggish and ugly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it, it is just not fun to watch. But Dangerous Men is never not entertaining. It, it is one of the most entertaining films of the decade. It's 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 not one of my faves on mm. that level. On that, like so bad it's good. If mm. you a phrase I'm not a fond of, I'm not uh, fond of. But for the sake of how, conversation, how about just a bad film that is entertaining? That's that's a better way to describe. I, it. I don't. I, here's my deal. If it's entertaining, how bad can it possibly? be is my mm, question right. so um but uh, regardless it's not my favorite amongst that like sort of subset of films but you definitely need to see it it's super it's super mm. freaking weird um okay my pick for the letter d is a marvel movie that most people don't know exists <laughs> most people think that marvel movies started with howard the duck first off that's wrong the first live action marvel movie uh that was released in theaters everywhere was actually red sonia they just didn't credit marvel with it uh totally based on the comic book version of red sonia a character named red sonia is like mentioned once Hmm. in robert e howard's stories but has nothing to do with the version that made it on screen that's all a marvel comic but that's not what i'm here to talk about there were two marvel anime movies from i think it was the really late 70s or very early 80s i don't have the year in front of me um that were based off of Marvel's horror comics from the 1970s. <laughs> One is called The Monster of Frankenstein, and I recommend it. It's super weird. But my favorite is called Dracula, Sovereign of the Damned. <laughs> now, you know like comics were like, super weird in the 1970s? Mm. Well, this is a movie that adapts like 70 issues of a Dracula comic 
into like one thing. So it's super fast paced and wild. It opens with a bunch of Satan worshippers trying to offer up a new bride for Satan. And then Dracula shows up instead, pretends to be Satan and then just takes the bride for himself. They (laughs) fall in love and have a baby. And then the baby is killed by Dracula hunters. And then the mom like risks her life to like resurrect the baby who turns into a 20 year old immediately and starts hunting Dracula down to the death. Dracula loses his powers. And there's a really surprisingly long sequence where he has his first cheeseburger and he's like it's pretty good uh there's like there's like killer wheelchairs like it's super fucking weird you have to see this movie it's super entertaining and the pacing and the storytelling will just weird you out but you got to remember they're just like they're just like trying to adapt like every issue of this comic mm. and whether or not it was intended to be done that way and you just kind of got to love it. It's like taking a random 70 issues of the Hulk and saying that's the plot of the next Hulk movie. That's not how it was supposed to go. But it's super entertaining. It's super bizarre. It's pretty easy to find online. Uh, check out Dracula Sovereign of the Damned. And as a fun double feature, The Monster of Frankenstein, which I didn't pick as my letter M. No. Uh, but uh, they're a really fun double feature. And um, yeah, l- look up a little bit of uh, esoteric Marvel history because I th- that's the good stuff as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Uh, Lettery. 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 The end of the tour. Oh, good pick. I love the end of the tour. Yeah. Uh, this is a James Ponsold film, uh, and it was about David Foster Wallace. Um, maybe this didn't get a lot of play because uh, if you know David Foster Wallace, you have an opinion about David Foster Wallace. <laughs> and he's, he's sort of a, a, a widely talked about figure. But this is about a, a biographer, a magazine writer played by Jesse Eisenberg, who uh, goes on tour with David Foster Wallace, played by Jason Siegel, in one of his best performances. Uh, David Foster Wallace had a sort of love-hate relationship with popular culture. He was uh, one of those slacker essayists who can perhaps be, if you're feeling generous and you're 21 and you're drunk at a college party, can call him a philosopher. Okay. Uh, but uh, I think he makes some really good points. And this is a really wonderful film about these two men just conversing. They just talk. Yeah. And how uh, the Jesse Eisenberg character is trying really, really hard to achieve fame. And how David Foster Wallace, who never tried to achieve fame but did, has a little bit of a cynical view about it. And doesn't want to fall into these pits of despair slash hedonistic pleasure that uh, fame and popular culture brings him. Uh, he doesn't own a TV, not because he's uh, like some sort of hipster who eschews the art, but because he knows it's too easy for him to fall into the trap of watching it all the time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they have a lot of just interesting conversations about this fellow who is trying to idolize and at the same time trying to kind of take down and embarrass uh, one of his idols and yeah. how uh, how sort of self-destructive that can be yeah uh, it is fascinating it's it is smart film. it has an excellent screenplay mm-hmm. it has a lot of really deep interesting thoughts on its mind yeah and just hearing these two people intelligent people discussing things in an intelligent way mm. it's like a relief where yeah. you realize that dialogue can be its own thing it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't have to serve a plot yeah. or a character or just communicate basic filmmaking tropes to you yeah I, I'm very fond of this mm. movie as well I remember this came out and there was briefly a moment where people were talking about this movie's amazing everyone mm. goes see it and then just by the end of the year like it had just been sort of swept aside by more recent critically acclaimed stuff and mm. made a couple of top ten lists and then no one talked about it since but it's, it's a really really good film and I really like this one a lot and I'm glad you remembered it and Thank you. Of course. Thank you. I went in a very different direction. (laughs) Uh, Okay. 
So, what do you get when oh, you combine geez. the Riders of the Rocketeer, uh, a cyborg, an Indiana Jones, <laughs> a robot oh, scientist, and a oh. ninja, and a time-traveling bad guy? Oh, William, God bless you. <laughs> you get Eliminators. I, I love Eliminators so much. Eliminators is a really, really, really fun, low-budget sci-fi adventure film about a team of over-the-top badasses who team up to stop a mad scientist who has come up with a time machine and has got a plan to conquer the world. The effects are actually pretty dang good. The, well, the, the the mandroid outfit is interesting. Yeah, there's this really cool, like, sort of RoboCop type uh, mm. cyborg dude who also gets like this sort of mobile tank unit thing that attaches to him. That's kind of neat. There's a floating robot as well that looks pretty good for the era. Um, it's the, yeah, an Indiana Jones knockoff, a ninja, and Denise Crosby yeah. as to, as a cyber as like a robot expert. Yeah, so she's, like, she's yeah. a scientist. I, I like yeah. to think she's playing herself. Just oh, yeah. we, we got Denise Crosby, the actress. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they, they team up to stop a time-traveling bad guy. That's all you really need to know yeah. <laughs> about what, Eliminators. What you need to know is that, you know, you're going to look at the cover and think, oh, there's no way it's going to live up to that. It mm. actually does. I mean, in a low-budget way. In a very yeah. low-budget way. But, like, the this uh, the, the team of screenwriters Paul DeMeo and uh, Danny Bilson uh, and director Peter Manoogian is actually one of my favorite underrated genre team-ups. They did this great movie, The Eliminators, and they also did a movie that came very close to being my letter A, uh, Arena. Arena is excellent. Arena kicks ass. I, uh, Imagine Rocky, but on Deep Space Nine. Mm. That's the movie. With some of the actors from Deep Space Nine. With actually, Mark, like... Mark like, Alimo and Armin Shimmerman are in that movie. Yeah, and also uh, one of the actors from Babylon 5, while we're at it, is in oh, there, Cla- That's right, Claudia Christian. Yeah, Claudia Christian's in it, too. Mm. But yeah, it's about like this underdog human who wants to join like this alien fighting arena. But aliens are all like giant monsters, and he's just a dude. <laughs> and humans can't compete with that, but through sheer force of skill, he's mm. able to fight his way up the ranks and become like this ultimate underdog. It's a really sharply written, well conceived. They actually had some money, so the monsters look really cool mm. in it. So yeah. the a double feature of Eliminators and Arena. My God, I would kill to see that on big screen. Um, and you can get uh, on a DVD set uh, four movies uh, that include Eliminators, uh-huh. uh, Arena. Uh, it's um, what are the other two? America three thousand. Oh, <laughs> oh, and what was the fourth one? Um, uh, it's, it, it's also a really fun movie. Um, hold on, hold on, oh gosh, it was on the tip of my brain. I just Arena had it in my Eliminators America yeah, but, Three Thousand. Let's see if that brings it up. Um, so the sci-fi movie marathon and the Time it. Guardians. And the Time Guardians, which okay. I don't know that one. Yeah, um, less well acclaimed. Yeah, but. That's but that's ten buy, bucks on Amazon. Buy that. That's a great set. It's <laughs> a seriously great set. Buy that set. J- just for Arena and Eliminators alone, but you yeah. get like, well, America three thousand is like sexist as yeah. fuck, but uh, it's yeah. it's still you know, it's it's out of stock, but it's easy to uh, at least the, you can find it on the second you, second hand market. Second right? market still ten bucks. Mm-hmm. So just yeah. check it out. Seriously, just mm-hmm. trust us. If that sounds even remotely fun to you, check out that double feature. <laughs> it's great. What's your what's your letter F? Uh, Speaking of sleazy schlock, mm. um, I'm, I've re- recommended this film before, but I love the movie Freeway. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> the Matthew Bright film. Uh, yeah, Matthew Bright made a modern adaptation of Little Red Riding Hood in the sleaziest possible way, uh, where uh, Little Red Riding Hood is uh, an illiterate teenager who's fleeing like an abusive household to go live with her grandmother, and the big bad wolf is Kiefer Sutherland, who is actually like a a child murderer. Mm. Uh, and yeah, and any kind of 
sleazy tabloid kind of uh, melodrama that you could rip from the headlines or episodes of A Current Affair, they put into this movie, and they revel in how sleazy it is. It is a filthy movie. Uh, Reese Witherspoon should have gotten an Oscar for this movie because she is great. She's pretty this wild. Movie. This yeah. is this is really this is that early. I feel like Reese With- Witherspoon kind of settled into movie star later in her career, mm-hmm. but she made some really interesting choices early in her when, career. Yeah, when when she's yeah. still trying to like sort of prove herself and prove yeah. that she's a really great actress, and it, yeah. I think she's a really great actress yeah. in this I, movie. I, I will say this about this movie. I, yeah. I appreciate this movie. This movie is really fucked up. Like if you're yeah, not, yeah. if you're I, not, I, I want to describe other things is, that happen. In I, it I'm actually really shocked. Kind of sick. I'm actually shocked. This isn't an NC-17 for dialogue alone. Mm. Like it's really twisted. So this is a I want to see a fucked up movie night. This is not a cash. Ooh, Reese Witherspoon is in this night. No, yes. this, it's, even it's not, even if you're thinking like, oh, I've seen Election. No, it's not. This is fucked up. It's not like sweet, fun, and kind of dark. It's yeah. like it's gutter filth kind of a movie. Yeah, but. As a guy who likes gutter filth movies, I recommend it. Yeah. Uh, it has its opening theme by Danny Elfman, mm. uh, a lot of really great twisted music cues, and it's super stylized. Matthew Bright worked mm. with Richard Elfman as well. Mm. Uh, in fact, he played um, Squeeze It and Frenchie in Forbidden Zone. Which I finally mm. saw, by the way. Oh, you finally saw Forbidden yeah, Zone? Yeah, I watched it with Michelle the other day. Go. It's um, it's great. It's great. It's weird. Parts of it have aged poorly, but it's it's mostly mm. great. I, I appreciate yeah. it very much. Uh, my, pick, my pick for the letter F... Uh, is a movie that I think a lot of people don't know exists, and the people who do know exist, I find often assume it sucks without actually giving it a chance. Hmm. It's The French Connection 2. Because <laughs> uh, it's a sequel to a better-known, more acclaimed movie. The French Connection, I think it won the Academy Award for Best Picture, sure did, Gene yeah. Hackman won Best Actor, directed by William Friedkin, considered one of the great cop dramas ever made, and I'm not going to fight that, it's amazing. Uh, it yielded a sequel about Four years after the fact, mid seventies, uh, Gene Hackman came back. Uh, I think it was Fernando Ray played the actual French uh, drug dealer in the movie. Uh, was it, no, for, it was Fernando Ray? Yeah, Fernando Ray. I looked it up. Um, and uh, it's directed by John Frankenheimer, uh, who of course directed The Manchurian Candidate, Seconds, Ronin, an incredible filmmaker in his own right. Uh, and it's if you recall at the end of The French Connection, one of the criminals gets away. So the sequel is about Gene Hackman, an American cop, going to France to track the guy down. And there's a couple of awkward bits in there, a little fish-out-of-water humor that really wasn't necessary. But it really kicks into high gear when the guys realize that Gene Hackman is onto them. And their plan isn't to kill him. Their plan is to discredit him. So they kidnap him and they force him to shoot heroin <laughs> until he's addicted to heroin and then they just drop him off in front of the police station and one of the cops is a friend of his and they like immediately like throw him into solitary confinement and a huge chunk of the film mm-hmm. is just Gene Hackman trying to quit heroin cold turkey wow. it is a tour de force bit of acting from Hackman it's really good and Although nothing can quite compete with the uh, with the car chase at the end of the French Connection, I think Frankenheimer does a pretty good job of doing the foot chase version of that climactic action sequence mm-hmm. in the French Connection too. It's really cool. Um, I, don't know, I like it a lot. I think it's highly underrated. Uh, people don't seem to be interested in it, giving it the time of day. But um, yeah, is it as good as the French Connection? No, but if it was the first one we ever had, mm. I think people would think very, very fondly All of this right. film. It's a cool flick. All right, what's your letter G? Uh, G, The Gift, 2015. Uh, directed and oh, written by Joel, Joel Edgerton. Um, yeah, this, Fucked up movie. Uh, it, it's, uh, this is a film that it, at its heart is about bullying. Um, Joel Edgerton appears in uh, Jason Bateman, or Jason 
Bateman. Yeah, yeah, Jason Bateman. Jason, Jason Bateman's life. Yeah. And Jason Bateman's married to Rebecca Hall. He's leaving sort of a sort of a, a calm, unassuming life. And mm. this figure from his past, they were friends in high school, friends, they knew each other in high school. Yeah. Uh, this guy sort of appears out of his past and starts to insert himself into Jason Bateman's life to an end we're not really sure. And I don't want to say anything else because... No, it's, it's full, the, of, it's full the, of revelations. Yeah, the, yeah, there's a lot of yeah, big big surprises yeah. in this The movie, screenplay is very well structured. Yeah. It's a good script. Uh, Joel Edgerton is a really interesting filmmaker, isn't he? As yeah. a director, he's, he's written and directed he, a couple features I think he's now, a better director than he is an actor. And I like him as an actor. Yeah, yeah. No, he's, he's, he's quite a fine actor, but I think yeah. he's much more interesting a uh, director. And yeah, yeah this, this was a weird... This was his... Uh, debut his feature debut uh, and he chose a really interesting topic it was really interesting in the ripples that victimization uh that one suffers as a youth can have on you later in life mm. and how that is fully and psychologically explored and how the characters of certain people do and do not change uh from mm. when you were younger yeah i, I wouldn't say I'm being, it's, I'm being very vague no i, I, don't I, give I wouldn't story, say it's but, necessarily a purely empathetic version of that because it mm. does qualify as a thriller yeah. people do make bad choices in this movie evil yeah, choices pe- one might argue do some yeah, pretty pretty wicked but stuff. the people you expect to be wicked aren't necessarily the ones who are um mm. it's a very 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 good screenplay i think it's an excellent film but it's very very twisted and it might not be for everybody but it's really good i'm glad you recommended this mm. uh i picked the guyver <laughs> you would the guyver is a live action american adaptation of an anime series which i think is based on a manga uh, about uh, a young man who accidentally stumbles onto this like th- this like super armor that enables him to fight off a series of genetically modified giant mutants that an evil corporation is going to use to take over the world. Uh, it's about as complicated as it sounds, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say, surprisingly. Uh, but the movie strips down a lot of like the the. The, the canon, the backstory, all the all that stuff. It makes it real simple. This is about monster fights. And they are gory monster fights. And the monsters look fucking awesome. Because they were created by Screaming Mad George. <laughs> who co-directed this thing. Screaming Mad George, if you don't know. Screaming Mad George is... Uh, there are certain makeup effects artists who are very well known. Your uh, Rick mm. Bakers. Uh, your Tom Savini's. Uh, Screaming Mad George should be up there. They're not, but they should be. Um, mm. They make some of the most elaborate, fanciful, gorgeous, yet totally believable prosthetic effects mm. you'll ever see. And when you see the monster costumes and everything in the Giver, you're going to say to yourself, well, shit, that looks cool. Like You can put that in Guardians of the Galaxy and we wouldn't fucking question it. So it's low budget, but the mm. monsters are awesome. There's a scene where Mark Hamill turns into a life-size, like a human-sized cockroach. Mm. That you just kind of have to see to believe because it's fucking amazing. Um, but uh, yeah, it's cheap. It's simple. It's got too many dumb jokes in it. But it's really cool. Mm. And I hope you check it out. And I have to make a confession. I have never seen the sequel, uh, which was, I believe, called The Giver Dark Something. <laughs> wasn't it's my it? favorite. No, no, it wasn't. There was a, The Giver Dark hero or something i haven't seven, seen either guyver you've never seen either of the guyvers i've seen neither guyver uh unfortunately no but i am a big fan of guyver Scre- dark hero i am a and, big fan of screaming mad george yeah who, who is a maniac yeah uh, of note guyver dark hero which i've heard is pretty good i just never got around to it mm-hmm. uh it stars david Hayter, 
who a lot of people know as the voice of Solid Snake uh, mm-hmm. in the uh, Solid Snake video game series. So uh, that's mm-hmm. a little extra fun bonus. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, cool, cool, low-budget, sci-fi, gory oh. monster flick. Hey, I was just fight. looking up Screaming Mad George on Wikipedia just yeah. to get a little bit more of, of the uh, yeah. filmography, and I'm quoted on the Wikipedia page. What? That's so weird. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, my God, I love that. Mm. That's... Our jobs are neat sometimes. <laughs> what did, what did yeah. you say? Uh, just that Screaming Mad George should be better credited for, yeah. for their work. Um, yeah. Uh, H. Yes. Letter H. Holy Motors. Okay. The, right. it, it's one, it's one, one of your best, go-tos, but one, you one love it. One of my it, go-tos. So. I love, I, I, it's, it's on Tubi. Watch it on Tubi right now. It's, <laughs> it's free. Or, or Pluto, if you prefer. Uh, yeah, Holy Motors uh, from Leos Carax is a uh, wonderfully bizarre film that seeks to, uh, I suppose, tell the story of cinema artificiality itself mm. and how valuable that can be. Um, it, it begins with uh, Leos Carax uh, in a hotel room by himself. He finds a, an aperture in his hotel wall, pushes through. It opens up into a movie theater in this fantastical sort of way, like Narnia. Mm-hmm. And there's a, it's full, a full movie theater, and it's full of people, and they're all asleep. So there's this commentary on modern movies. There you go. People are asleep in a theater. Uh, it then cuts to uh, Denis Levant, uh, an actor who you've probably seen before. He's a very striking looking. He uh, is going to work in the morning, and uh, we'll get into the back of a limousine which is a full-on makeup and costume studio unto itself and puts on makeup and costumes and then prosthetics and will get out in a new character and just sort of out in public play this play a role. He's a begging old woman in one. He's a, a special effects technician in another one. He's somebody who has to help somebody through a mourning process in another one. In, uh, in one of the most notable segments, he uh, is the sort of like sewer-dwelling monster guy hmm. who wears a green suit and like eats flowers and kidnaps Ava Mendez. L- uh, playing herself. Playing herself, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, there's something weirdly pure about Holy Motors, about what it is saying and what it is doing. First of all, it's incredibly funny, and hmm. it is going to keep you on your toes and have you thinking through a lot of these really bizarre scenarios, and, and you know, it'll just get your mind inflamed. Hmm. Uh, and I think what Leos Carax is saying is what a vital function fiction and storytelling serves in the larger world. And how it is all fake, it is all strange, we don't necessarily know the beginnings and the ends of things, but everybody is a story. And I think if we were to see them as part of their, like, the protagonist of their own story, then maybe we would have a broader sense of connection to art and the world. Uh, or not. Uh, it's yeah. just fun to contemplate and it's fun to discuss. And it, it, it's really, really, it was one of my favorite movies of the 2010s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've recommended a lot. I've talked about it enough. Uh, but but you really want people to see it. That's what's yeah, important. Yeah. Well, listen, I've, I've never seen Holy Motors, mm-hmm. but I do love John Ritter. <laughs> and that's a great sentence. And you can just whip that sentence out at any time. Right. It fits any situation. <laughs> Uh, John Ritter. John Ritter is a legendary comedic actor. He's best known for the for the sitcom Three's Company. I don't know how well known that series is nowadays with younger generations, but it was huge. And he had a modestly successful movie career. And there's one movie that he made that I'm very fond of. It's not amazing, but I like it a lot. Uh, that just never gets talked about. It's called Hero at Large. 
You've talked about Hero at Large I, in the past. I, I think it's sweet, and I think it's it's uh, it's a superhero movie uh, in which John Ritter plays an an actor who gets hired to play a superhero movie character, like within the movie itself, like at a movie theater and like hand out tickets to take pictures with kids, you know, like just like the people like playing all the various characters at Disneyland, but he's playing, you know, it's like if Captain America is playing a local theater and they hired an actor to be Captain America in the lobby. Boom. Mm. Uh, on his way home, he's still wearing the costume. He's in a liquor store that's getting robbed and he happens to stop the robbery, uh, which creates this kind of weird sort of, uh, media frenzy over who is this mysterious vigilante and he has to decide what he's going to do with that potential amount of acclaim mm. is he going to try to capitalize on it or is he going to try to use that acclaim for something a bit more productive and positive and he ends up getting roped into a big publicity scheme for uh, a local politician which ultimately sinks his own credibility because he sold out it's about selling out. It's about whether or not you can do something altruistic if you accept celebrity for it. Hmm. Um, and I actually think it, it's 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 not as funny as I would like it to be. I feel like you get John Ritter in a superhero movie, you expect it to be funny and it's whimsical, but it's not it's not like laugh out loud hilarious. But what it surprisingly is is thoughtful about the ethics of celebrity and heroism, hmm. and that's something that I feel like a lot of superhero movies just don't care about. We're not really going to talk about the ethics of heroism. We're not going to talk about what it means to be a superhero, but also enjoy a limelight. Like mm. they just kind of brush over that and get to the get to the action. There's not a lot of action in this superhero movie. There's no superhero powers in it. It's just about a guy who wears a costume who becomes a big deal. Yeah, and I think it's really sweet. And I think it's overlooked. And I hope people check it out, enjoy it. It's mild, but it it's effective. And John Ritter is the best. So yeah. All right. Moving on. Excellent. Uh, letter I. Yeah. Island of Lost Souls, 1932. Ooh, good. Uh, the, the, the greatest uh, film in the Universal Monster canon, but it's a Paramount film. Uh, <laughs> yeah, kind of yeah. is. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was directed by Earl C. Kenton, uh, and it is an adaptation of the H.G. Wells uh, novel, The Island of Dr. Moreau, which has been adapted numerous times to film and TV, and it is about, uh, uh, just like the novel, a mad doctor who has found uh, an, an island where he can work in private, where he is using vivisection to uh, cut into animals and turn them into people somehow. Mm -hmm. Like he's using surgery to turn animals into people. And he is successful and he's created this island of really strange, completely terrifying animal monster people who are led by uh, Bailey Lugosi, who plays the Sayer of the Law. And, uh, yeah, it's about a, a boring hero type who goes there to find out what all of these mysteries and discovers just this horrendous nightmare world. A lot of these uh, Universal Monster films from the 1930s are cliche now, and I could understand how a younger viewer might watch something like Frankenstein or Dracula and say, you know, it's kind of slow moving. Hmm. I've, I'm familiar with all these images. It's not scary anymore. I know where this story goes. That's a popular um, yeah, complaint, yeah. Island of Lost Souls, in being not quite as familiar to popular audiences as something like Dracula, mm -hmm. uh, has the has the benefit of now like those nightmare images and all of the horror 
fully intact. Yeah, it really and gets under your skin. And I can't watch the Island of Lost Souls without getting the jiblies a little bit. Well, uh, it, it, it's really kind of terrifying. Uh, Charles Lawton plays Dr. Moreau. Mm-hmm. And he oh, he's is, amazing. He is a, a smart... I mean, nobody could do smarmy like Charles Lawton. Nobody can do anything like yeah, Charles Lawton. Yeah, I yeah. consider him like one of like the top five actors who ever worked mm-hmm. in film. Yeah, and he, here yeah. he is playing this like evil doctor who has this island of animal people that yeah. he's sort of... Sort of enslaved. So there's yeah. this weird colonial undercurrent oh, to all of this. It's, it's right on the uh, surface, I yeah. think. It's this whole idea that because we are white and powerful, mm-hmm. we have the right to do horrible things. And it, that's, of course, a monstrous thing to think and say out loud. Well, he, and he's the monster. He's, and he's, he's the, monster. the villain of the piece. Yeah. Uh, the, the Island of Lost Souls is really fucked up, I think, even by today's standards. They're like, we, they don't show it in detail, but like it's just off camera. Like, literally, mm-hmm. you hear people, like, being mutilated by live surgery while they're awake mm-hmm. in the next room. <laughs> like, it's fucked. Yeah, and yeah. it really builds and builds in intensity. A lot of the other, like, horror movies of the era, even the great ones, they don't build in intensity the way a lot of contemporary movies do. They kind of stay at, like, a slow, simmering dread. Yeah. Um, even Dracula, it's just sort of like, oh, and he's going to run away in here. Well, then we'll follow him, and then mm-hmm. we'll stake him. And yeah, it's sort of like okay, it's not not a that's not a really pulse pounding climax. I, I I appreciate Dracula because it it feels like a, a like a stage play that's yep. bled out into the real world. So no. the theatricality is actually something that I think serves its favor. But I know that's no, no, I'm just saying it's, it's creepy, but it mm. doesn't have this. I think I think it's one of the reasons why Island of the Lost Souls probably plays better to modern audiences. Yeah, maybe because so. it feels more akin to contemporary horror cinema. Uh, and yeah, it's great. It's a really good pick. I kind of wish I thought of it actually. Mm. Um, I picked a movie that is one of my actually is it my hmm it's one of if not my favorite film ever to win the Razzie Award for Worst Picture. <laughs> okay, it's I Know Who Killed Me. Oh, that's a good movie. I will go to bat for yeah. this thing. This movie was uh, sort of billed as Lindsay Lohan's uh, big attempt okay. to break out of the kids Disney movie uh, mold. It was a creepy high concept serial killer horror movie uh and it got savaged by the critics uh it made no money and the razzies gave it like every award they possibly could because if there's one thing the razzies love it's an easy target um dog piling on the thing that's already unpopular and listen and sometimes they they do indeed single out bad movies and sometimes they single out perfectly good movies that just weren't given a fair shake and i will go to bat for i know who killed me is it a masterpiece no is it really interesting and good yeah Lindsay lohan stars as a young woman she's a pianist and uh, there's a serial killer who is kidnapping women in her town keeping them alive for weeks and then mutilating them and leaving their body uh Lindsay lohan goes missing she returns and she's been uh mutilated like many of the other victims but she's alive but the kicker she says she's someone else. She she is now a new identity and has yeah. an entirely new set of memories and yeah. new past. It seems as though the post-traumatic stress has com- has caused her to have a complete breakdown and turn into another person or to deal with what happened to her. But as a result, she can't help them find out mm-hmm. who, who killed her. She doesn't know who killed her. Um, it's a weird movie and I'm not going to pretend that it's not. And I think one of the traps that this movie fell into is because it was a Lindsay Lohan film, because it was so heavily hyped. A lot of people watched and I think even reviewed this movie who aren't familiar with the sort of the, the origins of this film, because this is not a slasher. Hmm. This is not a silence of the lambs knockoff. This is a giallo. Hmm. 
And giallos are a weird subgenre of the horror genre. They are over the top. They are operatic. They do not have to follow uh, conventional logic. They can operate on dream logic very easily and get away with it. But if you don't know you're walking into that, you're going to think to yourself, this is weird for the sake of weird. I don't think it works. No stars. It's really beautifully shot. Lindsay Lohan's actually really good in it. It's super duper weird. I like it a lot. It got a really, really, really raw deal. So please yeah. give this movie a shot. Put, put aside all of the crap and just give this movie a shot as a weird Euro trash inspired bizarre dreamlike serial killer horror movie with some truly incredible like plot twists. I love this movie. Please give it a chance. It's good. Well, uh, yours would maybe make a good double feature with my J, uh, which is uh, Adrian Lin's 1990 thriller Jacob's Ladder, which oh. is now sort of passed into like people our age are really familiar with Jacob's Ladder and it yeah. became shorthand for a long time. Yeah. And I don't hear it discussed by the new generation of critics so much. I, it's a shame because it's. Yeah. I think it's one of the best. It's easily one of the best horror movies of the 90s. Mm. And I think that also makes it one of the best horror movies of all time. This movie is uh, absolutely hellish. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, and it stars Tim Robbins as a, a Vietnam vet who uh, begins experiencing over the course of the beginning of the movie some very terrifying... Very terrifying uh, nightmarish hallucinations. He begins seeing these monsters kind of lurking around him. Uh, he's uh, in physical therapy. He goes to see a doctor played by Danny Aiello. Is this kind of angelic presence in his life? Yeah, the one, the uh, one and, thing in his life that's actually and, comforting. You know? Yeah, and everything else is really kind of bleak and uncomfortable. Uh, he is also living down the death of a child. Uh, that's sort played of, by Macaulay Culkin. That's right. We get to see yeah, him before in, it was in, like well known flashbacks as yeah as a young boy and. Uh, and he's taking no comfort from his wife, who's played by the late great Elizabeth Pena. Oh, she's uh, amazing in it. Yeah, who, who what is, a great actor. Yeah, and uh, eventually the truth is revealed, and how it actually does relate back to uh, what he experienced in Vietnam, and how much that was uh, mm. causing so much stress and anxiety and death fantasies mm. that he just can't seem to escape, and. The way the death fantasies, mm. these d mm. demonic things begin creeping more and more into his life. So freaky. Uh, is, it, it, to me, that's like what, that's what it feels like to just go insane. <laughs> just the world turns into this twisted place. Uh, and yeah, there's some really, really, uh, truly unique, utterly terrifying, uh, like horror images in this movie mm -hmm. that haven't been outdone since. No, in fact, they've actually been copied a lot and a lot of people don't even know where they're from sometimes. Mm. Uh, if you've ever played the Silent Hill video games, this oh, yeah. is a direct inspiration for Silent Hill. Like they've oh, actually said, okay. like they, they this is the atmosphere they were going for. Mm. This is the idea of here's the normal world, and then just something gets tweaked, and now everything is symbolic and evil yeah. and twisted and warped and frightening. And uh, yeah, this and Silent Hill had a massive impact on almost every horror game that followed it. Every mm. like sort of survival horror where that was to scare you. So Jacob's Ladder has had this gigantic impact on video games. Mm. And I feel like it's people don't really pay mm. enough attention to it as a film as they used to yeah, and as they should. There's a remake, by the way. It's really, really bad, and it, and it's not even the same premise, is it? It's no, like, it's not really. Entirely. They tried to like update it to like contemporary mm. wars, but like it it mm. no, and it's uh, it it, just, yeah, the, it super sucks. But the yeah. the screenwriter of of Jacob's Ladder is a uh, Bruce Joel Rubin. He also wrote Ghost. Uh, who, oh, yeah. uh, 
was the highest grossing film of 1990 and it won yeah. an Academy Award. And it's a great uh, screenplay. He, uh, and he uh, has gone on record saying that Jacob's Ladder is also a Buddhist parable. Yeah. And it's actually about uh, uh, the the uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead and how yeah. it draws a lot of inspiration from uh, uh, Buddhist, Buddhist yeah. mysticism. Yeah, this movie, uh, so might, this movie might scare the this, shit out of uh, you, but it also might actually be really enlightening. And I think that's something mm. that the horror, horror genre in cinema rarely tries to do. Yeah. And, but which is, Jacob Ladder does the, it very it, well. And it's the perfect way to do it because the horror genre deals with death mm. and what makes us feel more con- contemplative and philosophical than mm. death. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Please, if, if you're, uh, if you've heard rumors of what Jacob's Ladder is, even if you know what the twist is uh, and you haven't seen it yet, go ahead and seek it out because it, it really is terrifying and it's really worth yeah. it. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I couldn't, mm. couldn't have picked a more different film. Mm. Uh, Roberto Benigni. <laughs> Roberto Benigni is an Italian comedian uh, who was incredibly popular in Italy, especially in the 90s, uh, and I think the 80s as well, but the 90s was the decade I was most familiar with. And uh, in America, he's pretty much almost exclusively known for the movie Life is Beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, which was a very bold attempt to do uh, a story that was about the Holocaust, but was also about sort of hopefulness and humor and using humor to make your way through the most horrible situation mankind had conceived. Um, whether it was successful or not, I leave to you, but that's not the movie I'm talking about. Uh, a lot of his other comedies are actually really hard to find now, uh, mm. which is a shame because yeah. those are the good ones. I think, I think uh, Il Mostro is really, really funny, but I think his masterpiece is this very silly crime comedy called Johnny Stacchino. Mm. Johnny Stacchino stars Roberto Benigni as a bus driver, uh, just very kind-hearted. Uh, uh, he, he's a bit of a con artist. He's like faking an injury in order to get disability, but like it's not in like an evil or malicious way. He's just desperately trying to get by, and it's really really hard. And um, he runs into a beautiful woman who is, of course, played by Nicoletta Brasi, who is his love interest in all his movies and in real life. Uh, and uh, she's immediately taken in by him, even though he's just some schlubby guy. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know what he did to deserve this incredibly lucky thing. She's taking him uh, on fancy trips. She's p- giving him like beautiful makeovers and fancy clothes and giving him a beauty mark for some reason. He doesn't know why that is. Making him use, uh, have a toothpick in his mouth all the time. I guess that's her fetish. And it turns out that she's the girlfriend of a gangster named Johnny Stacchino. Stacchino is Italian for toothpick. And he is in hiding because he ratted out his uh, fellow mafiosos. And her plan is to get this guy who looks suspiciously like Johnny Stacchino to just hang out in the open and just wait for someone to assassinate him. And then once he's dead, everyone will think Johnny Stacchino's dead and the real Johnny Stacchino and her can get away mm. scot-free. Uh, and just seeing every gag that they build around this is like beautifully constructed. There's a little bit at the beginning where we see that uh, the, the good Roberto Benigni uh, is really good at like stealing bananas. That's just this thing. He doesn't, it's not evil, but he's just like, I can't afford a banana. Whoop. Found a way to steal a banana from the local grocer. Ha <laughs> ha. I got away with it. Uh, this builds in the most epic possible way <laughs> to a it's, scene it's, at an opera in, that you have to just see to believe. It is impeccably Constructed. Um, yeah. You and I have constantly uh, or frequently uh, mourned the loss of the scripted comedy. Yeah. Uh, how a lot of modern American comedies tend to be very relaxed and groovy. A lot yeah. of it's based on riffing or a yeah. personality of a comedian and letting them just yeah. sort of converse and find the humor in there. And that's fine. That's a completely a legitimate nice way to way make a comedy. comedy yeah. But there's something to be said for the scripted comedy where set pieces build upon set pieces 
until you get to this madcap climax where everybody's rushing to the same location yeah. and comedic, comedic explosion yeah. happens. This is one of the great movies where every single person in a scene is having a different conversation mm. and you're following along with all three simultaneously and every interaction is hilarious. Mm. It builds a little slow. Because they're setting up all the pieces. They're putting all the dominoes in place for like the first half hour or so. But once they start to tip, it is comedy gold from beginning, <laughs> from like from that point on. Absolutely mm. hilarious. One of my favorite comedies. I don't get to talk about it enough. Mm. Johnny Stacchino. Yeah, Johnny Stacchino is great. And all right. It was, it was talked about very intensely when it first came out. And then, yeah, it just, yeah just it's, because it's, it wasn't available, yeah. people It's still not. Like it. a lot of those early mm. Benini comedies, just they're, they're not available right now. Yeah. If you can find it, please check it out. Yeah, sometimes, check, uh, sometimes it'll just pop up on YouTube. Because some kind-hearted person decided to do so, uh, in which case, just check it out. And if you can get it like on Amazon, or whatever, if it becomes available, please check it out. It's so yeah. good. Johnny Stacchino is yeah. really, really hilarious. What's your letter K? Uh, my letter K is. I admit this is one for me. This is one I watched incessantly in college. Okay. It's one that was dear to my friends. It's one that we quoted a lot. It was Kids in the Hall Brain Candy. Oh, there you go. Uh, Kids in the Hall made a movie, uh, and it wasn't really well received, and it was a financial flop, and it got not very good reviews. Uh, but it has a, a kind of cynical, bizarre, very, very uh, centered in 1996 quality to it uh, that um, is, is, I think, still kind of infectious. And you can still kind of dig a little bit if you were to watch. Um, mm. Kids in the Hall are a Canadian sketch comedy troupe. They had five seasons of a sketch comedy show produced by Lauren Michaels. Uh, they decided to end the show and make a movie. Uh, so they made one called Brain Candy. And the story, uh, such as it is... Uh, is about the invention of the most powerful antidepressant in the world. Uh, in fact, to the point where, uh, because it's run by an evil pharmaceutical company, it's rushed out onto the market. It's really, really effective to just sort of blissing people out. It's almost like a narcotic. Uh, and of course, there are side effects that the the pharmaceutical company didn't care about, didn't learn about, and don't, don't doesn't really care about. And how this uh, new antidepressant is essentially like sweeping the world and is going to be this like apocalyptic thing. Just the world yeah. is going to end because of this antidepressant. Yeah. Um, underneath all of that is a really weird message about the function of learning to cope with depression. Mm. Uh, now, some people do need antidepressants, but there was... Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm one know, of them. But uh, the the sentiment of the movie is that there's actually a whole gamut of human emotions and you shouldn't uh, like you, you should work to uh, face depression and also live with it because it's kind of a part mm. of your, a part of you. Of course, the irony um, is that that's a fundamental mm. misunderstanding of how antidepressants uh, actually work. They yeah, don't eliminate yeah. depression. They just make it a little bit more manageable. Well, I, I think this is, yeah. this is a fictional antidepressant. I just want to make like, it clear. Like, that's like, one of the reasons yeah. why I'm not, I'm not as high on this because yeah. I feel like the kind of, when you look at how, like, when Monty Python skewered something, they were usually skewering something pretty fairly. Yeah. And I feel like this sort of anti-anti-depression thing was mm. a little bit like, um, there's mm. enough of a stigma against mental health. Maybe we overshot this a smidge. And that's and that's fair. There, was, that's a, there that's wasn't a, as wide a discussion being had about depression and antidepressants yeah. uh, in 1996. So they, yeah. were, they were going, they had a, a point of view. Fair enough. It's, it, it's a little naive. Yeah. And I'm, I, I'm willing to... Uh, not look past it, but acknowledge that. No, that's fair. Perfectly uh, reasonable. That said, many parts of it are still really funny. There's, I, I, there are a lot, of, like a lot of a lot of really uh, very strange, very funny uh, bits in this movie. Uh, a lot of weird musical numbers in this movie. A lot of really tasteless humor in this movie. Mm. Some of which uh, plays very well. Some of which doesn't. Never <laughs> did. In fact, um, 
there's a character from the, from the show that they put in the movie that they called Cancer Boy, which mm. uh, even the kids in the hall admitted was a little tasteless. Uh, a little, and putting him out. Pa- yeah. Paramount wouldn't even market this movie because they refused to take that character out of the movie. Wow. Uh, yeah, so they just so, shot their whole movie in the foot. Yeah, pretty much. It's yeah. like, no, no, we have to have this horrible character that we don't like in the movie. Well, it's a horrible character. It's tasteless. It's, it's yeah. terrible, tasteless humor. No, they're going to leave him in the movie. Yeah. So that's why those, that's those that's scenes, why we only have one kid. Those in the scenes movie. are hard to take, yeah. but uh, I I just I I I, can't, I have to recommend it just for personal nostalgic Fair reasons. Enough. This is one we watched a lot. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, for my letter K movie, did you know sexy vampires are sexy? Mm. Oh God. Well, they are. Mm. Uh, and uh, in the early two thousands, uh, there was a bit of a sexy vampire backlash because the Twilight movies and books were so popular. And yet not very critically appreciated that everyone started rolling their eyes. However, there was one really good sexy vampire movie that came out at the time. Flew under everyone's radars. I hope you check it out. It is called Kiss of the Damned. It is directed by Zan oh, Cassavetes. I, I, I got to meet Zan Cassavetes when we screened this one at the yeah, New York. She was really cool. Um, so uh, this is a story of uh, a, an ancient and impossibly gorgeous vampire uh, played by, I believe, uh, Josephine de, de la Baume. Hmm. And um, she has, you know, she, she'll feed herself and everything, but she's been living in isolation because she knows she's a monster. And then one day she runs into, I believe he's a screenwriter, and he's played by Milo Ventimiglia, who you might remember from uh, Heroes. I think he's on This Is Us. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he's also incredibly sexy. And they form a connection very, very quickly, and they start having incredible sex all the time. <laughs> and when he finds out she's a vampire, he's Fine with it. Let's be vampires together and have sexy sex forever. And I'm like, yay! Everything about this movie is fantastic. And then it turns out her... I'm trying to remember. It's been a while since I've seen it. I think it's the it's the vampire who sired her or like her sister vampire shows up out of town. Like a relative all of a sudden is going to come live with us. But she is also sexy. And uh, maybe a little too sexy. And also completely unscrupulous. Mm. Whereas our hero vampires are like perfectly content to live in their bubble, only feed when they have to, and just be content living in isolation. There's the other ethos, which is we are creatures of the night, we are predators, let's feed. And uh, it leads to this sort of moral decay. It's very mm. European, like, oh, we have this wonderful <laughs> marriage, and that, then a sexy new person comes into the house that was and the starts exact, sexying everything up. That was the exact adjective I was going to use. This yeah. is an incredibly European movie. A very, very European mm. movie. But it's it's a really good one. I think this is one of the most stylish vampire movies. I think this is a movie that understands the inherent eroticism behind many of our great horror creatures. Um, and, um, and it, I think it's smartly about that. I don't think it's just sexy for its own sake. I think it is about, uh, the morality of sex things about the morality of just being alive. Um, mm. and, uh, all the actors are really, really good in it. I, this movie should not have been swept under the rug. I really do admire this film a lot and I'm glad I got an opportunity to give it a shout out because yeah, it's, it's fucking great. So please go see Kiss of the Damned. It's it's, it's maybe may the best sexy vampire movie that isn't part of the Karnstein trilogy. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. It's it's been a while since I've seen it, but yeah, yeah. I do, do do remember digging it. I remember really liking the ending. It's kind of a bleak ending. Yeah, that's yeah. a good one. Yeah. Uh, Letter L. Letter L. Um, I recently recommended uh, Children of Paradise on, mm. on another uh, podcast. If you're looking for uh, like a big gigantic sweeping of 
four hour long, huge budget, intergenerational uh, period epic, mm -hmm. and you don't want to deal with the racist shit and Gone with the Wind, there are alternatives. <laughs> there are. From France, we got Children of Paradise. And from Italy in the 1960s, we had uh, Lucina Visconti's The Leopard. Oh, I've never seen this. Uh, yeah. The Leopard uh, from 1963 is, uh, it's a period piece, and it, uh, Burt Lancaster plays the patriarch of what is essentially a dying dynasty. He understands that his family is starting to fracture. Uh, he has a son who's played by Alain Delon, uh, and, or son, maybe. Uh, yeah. But uh, some marriages are going to happen that aren't in line with the usual kind of, like, big balls and, you know, uh, uh, royal crap that these families yeah. have been going through for years, and he understands that everything's sort of crumbling. And it, and indeed, over the course of the film, we get to sort of see the dissipation of the uh, the Italian elite. Uh, mm. And you know, the Italian elite, uh, if you know history, were quite elite. Uh, you know, they were in. You know, we got people like the Borgias. You know, these powerful families were just influencing all of politics and religion all throughout Europe for a long, long time. And this is sort of like, it came out in the 1960s, it's very cynical about all of that, and it's about all of that falling apart. Uh, and it all culminates in this really wonderful scene where uh, the Burt Lancaster character is throwing a big ball, mm. and hundreds of people are in this gigantic mansion. It is some of the most sumptuous uh, images that you'll see uh, in, out of like period cinema. And he's wandering through room by room, uh, there's like a lot of high shots, and we get to see him wend through these rooms where everybody's dancing and having a wonderful time, our eye is on him, and he's just sort of taking it all in, and you realize this is sort of like a funeral for him. Oh, mm. your, your computer's... My, my, my mom just texted me. Oh, hi, Mom. <laughs> hi, Mom. She wants to see Visconti's The Leopard as well. I just have to, um, I have to, I have to send her more cat pictures. Oh, I see. <laughs> um, the Leopard, uh, on a personal note, The Leopard was one of those films that I only ever heard professors talk about. Like, you need to see The Leopard. It's very, very important. And, you know, when if a film is assigned to you as homework, you're going to be skeptical. It doesn't matter how good it is, especially if yeah. you're young and cynical and you don't want to watch it. Uh, but I watched it. I watched The Leopard uh, on the recommendation of a few uh, professors and of Roger Ebert and discovered this cinema classic that I had never heard of before. Uh, and I was so lucky to have discovered it. And luckily also, um, the Criterion Collection put out this gigantic three disc set where there's alternate cuts of the movie. Mm. Uh, like a lot of Italian cinema, it was record, all of the actors spoke their native languages and then they would all be dubbed. So you can watch Burt Lancaster's uh, original English language dub where all of the other actors are dubbed in English. Oh, or you can watch all of the Italian actors speak their native languages with Burt Lancaster being dubbed in Italian. And, Al and Alain Delon, who's French, also being dubbed in Italian. That's awesome. So yeah, you can sort of juggle, juggle back and forth between all of those. That's all what special features are for, man. Yeah, That's yeah, the yeah. coolest. Um, please see, please see the leopard yeah. and, uh, yeah, just enjoy every wonderful minute of its like 200 minute runtime. I like zombies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you really, I, I got a weird, I, look, I just well, recommended like, kids in the hall. No, no, so no, I, got, no, no, I don't have no, a leg no. to stand I, on I, here. I, here's what it boils down to. You know, I'll watch anything and I've, I love all mm. the variety of genres, but when all is said and done and I'm just sitting down and I have one of my rare occasions where I just get to watch anything I want to watch, I'm probably going to lean towards something weird and genre. Mm. And I think most of the films on my list bear that out. Uh, and uh, there is a really, really great zombie movie that um, I think a lot of like hardcore fans are aware of, but a lot of casual fans don't know exists. Or if they do, they might get confused because it's been released under a bunch of titles. My favorite title for this movie is The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it's also been released, I think, more often than not on home video as Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. Okay, that's uh, that's the title I know. Yeah, it's also been released. Uh, it's a, it's a uh, Spanish-Italian uh, horror film. It's I think the Spanish title is something like uh, Do Not Profane the Sleep of the Dead, which is... God, that's a good title. That's so evocative. I love that so much. Um, this is a 1974 uh, zombie movie, and it's a zombie movie in the vein of George Romero. And what's interesting about that is, although Night of the Living Dead was an incredibly successful film, it didn't immediately spawn a wave of copycats, nor... Well, it took a while for it to become the gigantic success of Exactly my point. Nor were the rules about zombies that were established by uh, George A. Romero's movies Mm -hmm. considered strictly canon for a while. So I think it wasn't until Dawn of the Dead, really, that zombies... Working in that exact milieu where they're like they're going to like swarm on mass, they all eat human flesh, maybe they eat brains. That was more of Return of the Living Dead, but uh, and uh, they they follow very specific rules. Um, before Dawn of the Dead, we did have a couple of Night of the Living Dead knockoffs that took the basic look and premise of Night of the Living Dead, but didn't adhere to the details we would expect them to today. And that's the interesting pocket of horror history in which the living dead at the Manchester morgue uh, uh, lives. Uh, it is about uh, a wave of zombies that is raised by uh, an attempt to um, like this weird new farming device that's supposed to like kill pests using like radiation or sound waves or something, but it also raises the dead and (laughs) dead are raised in like the way in which they died. So if you were a drowning victim, you're constantly soaking wet and like dripping everywhere, which is more of a supernatural thing. I was about to say, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The rules don't make sense. It's not about the rules though. Again, it's very European. Um, But um, it's, it's wild. The gore effects are fantastic, Um, but the story doesn't follow the conventional structure. We're like, Oh, we have to, Shore up in this bunker. It's more of investigative journalism kind of thing. There must be some zombies around here somewhere. Um, it's been a while since I've seen it, so I'm not going to go into the details of the plot because I might get the details wrong. What I will say is that if you feel like you've seen every zombie movie, uh, look for that little area where zombie movies weren't zombie movies yet. They were still figuring themselves out. And I think one of the best examples is Let Sleeping Corpses Lie slash... The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue. Wherever title you find it on, you're going to have a real good time. Moving okay. on. Moving on. The letter um, M. Letter M. Morvern Kalar. Oh, uh, I'm embarrassed that I haven't seen this because I love Lynn Ramsey. Yeah, this is uh, yeah. this is the second film from Lynn Ramsey. Uh, her first feature was Ratcatcher, uh, which is uh, great. Yeah. You might hear it later on this list. Um <gasps> I, I, I have I have two repeated directors on this list. Um, I, I think I subconsciously but, uh, tried to avoid that. I don't think I actually have any. But. Yeah, Morvern Kalar is um, a, a wonderful story, uh, as only Lynn Ramsey has been really been able to uh, capture. I feel uh, a story of of sadness and depression. And uh, Morvern Kalar is about a young woman who uh, comes home to her apartment and finds that her uh, boyfriend has committed suicide, mm. and she seems kind of unaffected by this. And in fact, doesn't tell anybody about it and leaves him there and goes out into the world and discovers a new kind of ecstasy in music. And we're not really sure. And she's played by Samantha Morton and uh, she, we're not really sure if this is her grieving process. If this is like maybe the, the dead body in her apartment is a symbol for something 
or if there's like something broader or more twisted going on in like a thriller kind of way. Mm. But what Lynn Ramsey does uh, most effectively is capture just the mood of it. Mm. It's a story told through her reactions and her emotions and how uh, human beings can uh, be unusual and inscrutable and a little bit difficult to read and can deal with life and pain and depression mm. in unexpected ways. Yeah. Uh, it's a great movie. It's just right. great. Uh, it, it's just this wonderful, colorful, uh, music-driven contemplation of human sadness. Yeah. Uh, I, I really, really love it. It came out in the early 2000s. Uh, it was on like high on a lot of critics' lists, but it didn't get a lot of awards, at least not here in the United States. Yeah. Uh, so it didn't like, pierce the public consciousness yeah, the way exactly. some art house films and, do. And, yeah. and now we can kind of look at it as, as a broader tapestry of the Lynn mm. Ramsey films. She's made a couple more since. Uh, and more deeply appreciated. And I think this one's like really ripe for rediscovery. Nice. Mm. Nice. Uh, YA movies. Mm. Um, we're so different sometimes. Uh, the, the YA movie genre, which dates back before like Harry Potter and Twilight, but those type particular franchises helped codify it in the 21st century. Um, it gets looked down on by a lot of people, many of them critics, many of them not. Uh, and, uh, I used to be not as enlightened about it myself. I'm kind of embarrassed by that now. And, uh, but there's a lot of bad ones, but there's a lot of good ones. And you can say that for any different genre. And I try to make sure that I go out of my way sometimes to go to bat for some of the better YA movies, because they tend to just get sort of the ones that didn't lead to a big franchise yeah. tend to get sort of just swept under a rug. Um, like Beautiful Creatures, for example, is a really wonderful fantasy-oriented mm. uh, uh, kids romance film. Really wonderful. But, uh, I like it a lot. Mm. I think it's it's got a lot of whimsy. I think it's got a lot of personality, and the two romantic leads are impeccable. Okay. All right, so I think it's I would I highly recommend that movie. It doesn't begin with an M though. Uh, but there's one that actually had multiple sequels. It's one of the very few YA franchises to actually get through to the end. And yet nobody <laughs> talks about it because most of them like have like one sequel at best and then they're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nobody talks about the Maze Runner movies. And I think these are fun flicks. <laughs> these are so stupid, but, man. Uh, and yeah. I'm sorry. Wait a minute. What what was what was your pick for letter D again? Oh, shut up. <laughs> Just saying. Oh, it's like, oh, we're gonna pick all these stupid cult movies, but when a YA movie is stupid, we're gonna be a dick about it. Like, no, the Maze Runner movies are fun. I think they're very fun. The plot gets increasingly stupid mm. to the point where I'm almost, like, impressed. <laughs> like, it's, I'm almost impressed by how stupid the plot gets yeah, in these things after a while. But it starts off really strong with, like, a whole bunch of kids suddenly waking up without their memories in the center of a gigantic maze. And I don't mean just, like, a big hedge maze. I mean the walls are skyscrapers. They're gigantic. Yeah, 100-foot-tall walls. Yeah. Uh, on a clock, a door opens in this wall that leads out into this maze that surrounds their, like, grassy yeah. compound. And they're welcome to go exploring, but there are monsters in the maze. Yeah. That will and kill them. It sounds... It's actually, it sounds like the setup to a great Twilight Zone episode. And mm. for a bit, it really functions as that. But once we actually get into the maze, it's actually a pretty fucking cool sci-fi parkour movie. <laughs> and I'm totally down with it. I'm not going to ruin where it goes from there because it's it's so weird you won't believe half it's, of it. But it, They actually try to, like, make, like, logical, yeah. palpable sense no, of this setup. They, they made, if it was, like, this fantasy where it's yeah. all symbolic, it would make a lot more sense. I agree. And if they had left the first movie there and they hadn't gone for, like, the cliffhanger tease, mm-hmm. I think it would have been a very highly regarded film and, like, sort of like a YA cube kind of thing. But they did continue, and the second film, The Scorch Trials, 
is bonkers as shit. <laughs> it's absurd. It's absurd, but I actually really love the way that it cultivates its action sequences. I actually think mm. it's like a really cool looking movie in the way that it like reveals new planes of action and how uh, it completely surprises you with where different avenues of adventure and like what sort of genre each location is going to take us through. I find that second one wildly inventive. And then the third one, the death cure falls into the trap of just wrapping shit up. And at that point, like the shit you're wrapping up, I care mm-hmm. less about. But by that point, I was invested enough to want to finish it. Uh, but those first two, the first one's a great Twilight Zone sort of action adventure for kids. And then the second one is just bonkers and weird. And then the third one's just okay. But mm-hmm. as a YA franchise, it's got, it, it made money, but it wasn't a billion dollar grossing series. So people don't talk about it a lot. But this one is fun, and I will go to bat for it. All right. Yeah. Um, it, it's fun. They're so, they're totally absurd. Like I'm not pretending they're yeah, not. The, the, I'm they're, not pretending they're not. I, I'm okay with like a silly premise if it weren't so goddamn earnest. Like they're yeah. they're really going for like big emotional punches, and it's just none of those are landing. I know that's that's the part where it fails is when it tries mm. to take itself too seriously. Like mm. when like anytime Patricia Clarkson has a monologue, you're just like. How are you doing this to Patricia Clarkson? She is a great actor. What did she do to deserve this monologue? This monologue is trash. This monologue is incomprehensible. I remember I listened to the... I wanted to stop the movie and give her some direction. Patricia, less. Yeah. Don't 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 try so hard. You're you're at a 90. I need you at like a 20. I remember I was listening to the commentary track for Finding Nemo and one of Mm -hmm. the the starfish is played by Allison Janney who's one of the great actors and uh, there's the director's commentary is like here's a scene in which Allison we cast Allison Janney who at the time was best known for the West Wing we cast Allison Janney for, for from the West Wing to play a starfish and in this scene we have her read like the entire instruction manual to an aquarium filter and boy does that feel like a waste of Allison Janney <laughs> and that's kind of the joke but it, it, it's the Maze Runner does that to like four different amazing actors like it's so mm. fucking funny anyway um, I like it though I think it's fun moving right. on um, I'd like to do N and O back to back if I may Okay, well, why um, don't I start with my N, and okay. then you do your own N and O back-to-back, and then All I'll right. do my O, okay? All right, what's your N? My N, uh, speaking of uh, sort of high-concept sci-fi movies that people don't talk about a lot, uh, No Escape kicks ass. Which one was No Escape? No Escape. There's a couple movies called No Escape. Yeah, the one I I'm referring to is the one starring Ray Liotta. Oh, you ever see this one? No. Oh, really? Oh, this movie's cool. Okay, yeah. so uh, so we come out in ninth. I'm double checking. It's 1994. It's directed by Martin Campbell, who would go on to do The Mask of Zorro and mm-hmm. Casino Royale, and I think he had already done Goldeneye. No, he hadn't done Goldeneye yet. It was just before Goldeneye. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he uh, uh, it stars uh, Ray Liotta as a uh, military criminal. He like he had the corrupt general, and he killed him. And uh, now he is being sent to a new sci-fi prison but it's not like fortress where there's like a whole bunch of like high-tech shit what they do is they drop you on a deserted island and say fuck it just don't leave so there's all kinds of like homicidal maniacs and also people who just committed crimes that are genuinely penitent and they're all just living on an island together Mm -hmm. and Stuart Wilson plays like the main bad guy because it's the 90s and he usually did until we found Gary Oldman we had Stuart Wilson (laughs) Uh, and uh, so he's like got his like road warrior crew of wild completely 
maniacal monsters. And uh, Lance Henriksen and um, is it Ernie Hudson? Yeah, Lance Henriksen mm-hmm. and Ernie Hudson are running. They're actually trying to run like a civilization on the other side of the island. They've got like they've been building cabins. They've actually like cultivating the land. They're just trying to like we'll just make the most of it. They don't give a shit if we if we we don't have to kill each other. Like we could just live here and that would be fine. Like we will just this is better than a prison. But every once in a while, a gang of ravaging mutants comes in and tries to kill us. So it's Ray Liotta in the situation, stuck between two different prison groups and trying to find his way off the island when anytime you even send so much as like a a fucking boogie board out past the surf, it gets like nuked from space. Let's just send like a fucking oh rocket. God, yeah. Like it's fucking great. Um, so it's it's fun. It's high concept. Yeah. It's a cool action movie. I like it a lot. Uh, doesn't get talked about it a lot. It's a very very good time. I, yeah. I recommend it. Okay. What's um, your what's your letter N? Uh, at uh, N and O, I, I wanted to li- list together because these are two films, uh, two Japanese new wave films from the 1960s by the same director. They're oh. both by Kaneto Shindo, uh, who uh, did a really tragic film called The Naked Island mm. uh, and also did one of the scariest films of the 1960s, Onibaba. Uh, oh, okay, I, I've yeah. talked about Onibaba yeah. numerous times before just because I love Onibaba. Uh, but The Naked Island is a, a rather no, a famous film because it has no dialogue. Mm. And we get to see through a series of uh, just static still shots a family of four living on a small island where they get by by uh, fishing and farming. And their entire life is just fishing and farming. It is about how hard their life is, how hard the chores are, how constant it is, and how they have to carry water up a hill. And we get a long, long shots of them carrying and struggling. And uh, But, you know, it's, it's not like there's no pity in the filming. It's just sort of very matter-of-fact. And this is just the way these people live. And when they catch a big fish, they can take it into market, they sell it, uh, there's a, a little bit of a crunch for time. Will the fish be fresh enough? And they get a lot of money and they get to eat out at a restaurant. Like, that's the big event in their life. Hmm. There's another big event in the film uh, that I'm not going to, to uh, let you discover. But hmm. uh, we do get to... We do see that their lives are so rigidly codified by labor that there's little time for anything else. That everything is very, very rigidly structured. Uh, if you live in a structured life, you're going to relate to this movie. If you have to get up and do anything on a regular basis, anything at all, whether it's a job or not, uh, you're, you're going to understand the, the silent grind of everyday living, how that hard labor can take everything and how you were given little time to feel certain things. Mm. Uh, Onibaba is also about kind of, uh, there's a lot of wonderful shots in The Naked Island of uh, the, the ocean moving and the, the grasses waving on the, on the island. Onibaba is also about this oppressive natural-slash-supernatural space. And Onibaba is a period piece, mm. and it's a horror movie. And Kaneto Shindo uh, it's, uh, set, sets it in this big field of waving grasses that are just above... Uh, head level that's like six foot tall grasses where two women are living. They live in these grasses. It's almost like a fairy tale. They live in a little hut and they make their living by finding rogue samurai who have abandoned the, the war that's just ended 
and are wandering through this field trying to stay AWOL and hide, luring them into a pit where they fall to their deaths, climbing down into the pit, stripping them of their armor and selling their armor. That's the way they make a living, by killing rogue samurai. Uh, Rogue samurai works his way through. It turns out he's a little bit more attractive. The younger of the two women uh, begins instigating this sort of very physical relationship with this man, much to the older woman's chagrin. She starts to take on this, like, witch and Hansel and Gretel quality towards mm. them, where she's, like, sort of scheming their death. Uh, and wouldn't you know it, another uh, samurai comes wandering through while she, the old woman is out by herself. He's wearing a demon mask, Oni. And uh, he claims that if he takes this mask off, she would f- instantly fall in love with him because he's so handsome underneath it. Uh, what happens there uh, uh, forward, I will leave for you to discover once mm. again. Uh, it is atmospheric. Uh, there's not a lot of music. A lot of uh, mileage is gained from just the sounds of the wind whipping through the grasses. Whenever I go through a, a grassy field, now I can't think of this movie and think that somebody's going to lure me to my death. So <laughs> thanks for doing that, Onibaba. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, while The Naked Island is actually very sort of terse and realistic, Onibaba feels really kind of ghostly and ethereal. And they were only made three years apart. Mm. Kaneta Shindo was an incredibly prolific filmmaker. I wish I could have seen more of his movies. Uh, he also did a really good horror movie called Kuroneko around the same time. I think that one I've seen. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, re- I recommend just as a good one-two punch as to uh, sort of s- the highs of the Japanese new wave, uh, The Naked mm-hmm. Island and Onibaba. Great. Uh Stanley Kubrick did not fake the moon landings, <laughs> but that doesn't mean he wasn't involved. One of the more interesting found footage films I've ever seen is a film called Operation Avalanche, which did you see this one? No. Okay. So this one's really, really fun. Uh, this is uh, ostensibly like a bunch of footage in like a CIA vault. And uh, it is about two young CIA agents who are investigating a possible mole in the NASA space program in the 1960s. They're concerned that the Russians may have infiltrated NASA. What they accidentally find while they're recording conversations is scientists explaining in secret that making it to the moon and back, landing and back, is scientifically impossible. And they don't know what to do. They don't know like how we're gonna. We're not gonna make our deadline. There's no. There's just the, the the technology isn't there yet. There's no way. And these two CIA AV nerds decide that I know how we fix this. We're gonna fake it. We are gonna fake it. We are gonna uh, get a set and we're gonna make it look like we went to the moon, even though all we did was shoot a rocket up in space and send it back down again. Mm-hmm. And. In order to figure out how to do that, lucky for them, (laughs) Stanley Kubrick is about to shoot a film called 2001 A Space Odyssey. So they sneak onto the set and they actually like surreptitiously shoot footage of Stanley Kubrick talking about the visual effects and stuff. So he's like kind of in the movie and uh, they decide to use the effects in 2001 to fake the moon landing. And it's all about them sort of prepping it, scripting it. And of course, once they do, uh, wait, you filmed all this shit and now people and now like the CIA is out to kill them. (laughs) Uh, obviously the moon landings were not faked there's nothing that that's bullshit it's nonsense it's this weird stupid conspiracy theory we should not be uh promoting however uh but that's one of the fun conspiracies it can be fun like you can this makes it fun this makes it this doesn't take it seriously Mm. it's clearly like a dark comedy 
Um, like in much in the same vein of like the, the fiction movie or the uh, sort of a conventional mm. uh, narrative fiction movie uh, Capricorn One, which is about how they faked a, a, a Mars uh, mission mm. uh, with Sam Waterston and O.J. Simpson. Uh, that's a pretty good movie. But Operation Avalanche is a really, really fun one. And it's one of the better examples of the found footage genre that wasn't a horror movie. Uh, it made a pretty big splash at Sundance and then just kind of got released and nobody noticed. But um, it's worth checking out. I think it's really clever, and if you like that sort of urban legend, especially that sort of Stanley Kubrick mythologizing, that Room 237 kind of kind of stuff, it's a very, very fun watch. I do okay. recommend it highly. All right, what's your next, uh, what's your what's your, key, oh, what's your P? Is P. Your P? Yeah. Uh, my, my P is Penn and Teller Get Killed. Oh, good pick. Uh, Penn and Teller, uh, often called like the bad boys of magic. Um, they're... Yeah. they're they, they don't like the term magicians. They call themselves either um, uh, illusionists. Illusionists even uh, is not so good. They call themselves rip-off artistes yeah. or, or, um, or bullshitters, they would prefer. Mm. They, uh, they're very fond of magic. They call themselves two eccentric guys who learned how to do a few interesting things, but they're also very talented uh, magicians. Mm. And they have a really twisted sense of humor. You know, Rather than just, I'm going to saw you in half, they'll actually like have stage blood and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Make make uh, it a little gruesome. Make yeah. it a little yeah. Um, they're, uh, I'd say they're really really outspoken. But Penn is the outspoken one. Teller doesn't speak on stage. Uh, yeah, and, the whole yeah, gag. Penn, Penn is the the big noisy guy, and uh, he he has opinions. And boy howdy, you're gonna know what they are. <laughs> uh, they made a movie uh, in in the late '80s with Arthur Penn, uh, who did Bonnie and Clyde, and uh, it's a, it's they're playing themselves. And the story of the film is how they have uh, they they have a stalker. And somebody's stalking them and is threatening to kill them and is dressing up as them. And they keep getting these mysterious uh, video cassettes. But because they're such twisted guys, it's like they see one of the video cassettes about this guy who's like going to kill. It's like, I'm going to kill Penn and Teller. And uh, Penn's immediate reaction is, can we not press charges and just hire this guy? Uh, like, the, they're actually like really <laughs> flattered that there's they have a stalker. Yeah. Um, and while Penn starts to get distracted because he starts having... Uh, like sort of this flirtatious affair with the cop who's out to protect them. Uh, Teller starts getting really, really paranoid and like goes out and buys a gun and like is actually really <laughs> afraid for his life. Um, and the title of the movie is Penn and Teller get killed. So guess what happens at the end of the movie? <laughs> they get living. Uh, Penn and Teller get killed. Oh, spoilers. It's the title of the movie. I'm kidding, <laughs> so, yeah. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. There's, obviously, yeah, it's like, obviously it's, I'm kidding. Yeah, John Coscarelli made a movie called John Dies at the End. Uh, yeah. Actually, you can't quite, really quite, a, quite a good movie. I, yeah. I, like, I almost put that on my list, actually. I like that movie a lot. Yeah, yeah John Dies really, at the End is really, really quite really wild. It's totally bizarre. Yeah, th- yeah. this is, um, if you're a fan of Penn and Teller, you probably know about the movie already. If you're not a fan of Penn and Teller, this would be a good introduction mm-hmm. just to their attitudes. There's a lot of footage of just their act and you know the kinds of things they worked on. Uh, Penn and Teller had a TV show that was called Bullshit, where they debunked just about anything they could think you could think of. Yeah, one time they debunked mm. mattresses, and I thought that yeah, was kind of funny. Yeah, like, they're, they're kind of like stretching by the time they're getting to mattresses. But yeah, things yeah. like good manners, foul language. Why? Yeah. Why do we consider those things at all? You know, what what is what is a curse word? And you know, and Penn and Teller also both famous like famously like libertarian atheists. Uh, Penn's written two books about how great it is to be an atheist. So he's mm. he has no trouble debunking uh, anything that has to do with any kind of organized religion. And there's a scene in the movie where they they debunk um a, a faith healer, like the kinds of guys who like claim to reach into the, your body with their bare hands and blood spills down your body and mm-hmm. and they say no that's that's not real. We're going to debunk that. And they, they it's all staged, but they do look like they staged this debunking. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's a good introduction to Penn and Teller. I think they're kind of a good 
popular kind of like cult figures in the entertainment world. And to this day, you can go to, I think they're still at the Rio in Las Vegas and you can, you can still catch their act. Awesome. Mm. Uh, well, my pick for the letter P mm. is from a director who begins with the letter P. Uh, he is Paul W.S. Anderson. Ah, Paul W.S. Anderson is a director who most people think of as pretty hit or miss, mm. uh, but I admire his consistency. He is a wildly over-the-top filmmaker who has mostly found his niche. Uh, he's directed a lot of video game movies, many of them in the Resident Evil series. Yeah, some of them are better done. than others, but some of them, most of them are very fun to watch. I think he did all but one or two, two of he them. Did two and three. Two and three. He did uh, two, I forget he did two, three was... I think it was Russell Mulcahy or Chuck Russell. I always get them confused. It was oh. one or the other. Because okay. <laughs> um, they make similar films. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in any case, uh, he has... He's mostly known for his Resident Evil movies and for making like Mortal Kombat. Uh, but I think my favorite movie of his is the one nobody else likes. It's Pompeii. <laughs> Pompeii is gloriously <laughs> stupid. Uh, it's an, it's, yeah, it's like Geostorm stupid. If you love mm-hmm. Geostorm, and you should... Pompeii is just as stupid in the best possible way. Yeah, it's it, not not historically accurate no, at all. No, <laughs> not, for not a second. even close. It stars um, dude Kit, from Kit Harrington. Kit Harrington, who was on yeah. Game of Thrones. Yeah, and when I reviewed, I got to review this one in print. Yeah, and I didn't know who Kit Harrington was at the time because ah. I, I wasn't watching uh, Game of Thrones. And uh, I got into a little trouble with my editor for not knowing that because I described him as this season's Sam Waterston. Uh, just, Sam Water or not Sam uh, Worthington? Sam Worthington. Sorry. Yeah. Not Sam Watterson. Yeah, I was about to say, like, he Sam, wishes. <laughs> like, this season, Sam Worthington, or that he's just sort of like bland action guy. Which is a pretty fair description mm. of how he was being cast at the time. Yeah. You're not wrong. Uh, but yeah, Kit Harrington. Okay, so basically it starts off with, um, it starts off with the opening of Conan the Barbarian. Like, Kiefer Sutherland is just, like, wandering through villages, killing everyone except, like, one boy in the hopes of making a Conan. And it works with Kit Harrington. And all of a sudden, he's this, like, young, super powerful badass. But he gets kidnapped once again by Kiefer Sutherland. And there's a scene where he meets, uh, like, the daughter of a senator played by Emily Browning. And she's like, oh, look at that handsome hunk of stud. Oh, no, my horse has thrown a shoe. <laughs> and there's this the great... Weird, the weirdest, sickest meet cute. Yeah, it's this weird meet cute where, like, her her horse is like he's dying and like someone's got to do something about it and Kit Harrington is like staring lovingly at Emily Browning while he sexily breaks her horse's neck with his bare hands it's fucking amazing um he is a gladiator in Pompeii Kiefer Sutherland is an evil like Roman general in Pompeii and what they don't know is that it's fucking Pompeii a volcano is about to explode nobody knows what the fucking volcano is which you gotta realize must have been really fucking weird like, to have no idea, and then all of a sudden the mountain explodes and is shooting magma everywhere, and he didn't even know magma was a thing. Um, so the magma starts blowing up everywhere, but damn it, Kiefer Sutherland really wants to kidnap Emily Browning. So while everyone is getting, like, hit by flying rocks and shit, Kit Harrington and Emily Browning are in a chase through this ancient Roman town and, like... Kiefer Sutherland is like flying oh. through smoke and shit trying to stop him. And, and it's like, they're priorities, people. What are you doing? It's so it's weird. A, this this film is, I'm kind of surprised it's not talked about more. It's like, it's like John Carter level of failure. Yeah. Like it, it, it was this was huge. an expensive movie and yeah. it tanked hard. Yeah. It's like a, a cutthroat island. I'm surprised people don't talk about what a bomb that movie was more. Because people don't, people don't see it very yeah. often. That's the deal. These, these giant bombs, if people don't keep seeing them, they just forget. No one remembers, mm. like, 
people who listen to this podcast might remember because we talk about it somewhat often, but Orca was like this huge, notorious failure. And then 20 years later, the studio just stopped showing it. Mm -hmm. So so people stopped talking about it, and now it's mostly Mm -hmm. forgotten, even though it's one of the wildest bad films I've ever seen. The Swarm is another good example here. Oh, God, The Swarm, yeah, was this massive studio production. Michael Caine starred in a giant ecological horror film about like killer bees unbelievably gigantic swarms of killer bees that were just taking over the whole planet and it's boring how did you do that and that's something i will say for pompeii never boring it is never it is always stupid (laughs) but it is never boring you will have a fun time with how ridiculously over the top Every single thing in this movie mm-hmm. is. I kind of most, admire most notably its consist- Kiefer Sutherland. Who he's, is, he's, he's having fun. He's just having a good time in that movie. He's having fun, but like mm-hmm. seriously, the whole it's movie like is, a, a, is a treat. It's a silly treat, and like I really G- like it. Jeremy Irons in that Dungeons and Dragons movie. It's like, oh god, what, what can I get away with? I today? don't even yeah. fucking know. <laughs> All right, what's your what's your cue? Uh, that one kind of incurious because there's not there are fewer options on cue. Let's just be fair. I here. suppose so. And yeah, it's, X is going to be interesting, especially as well. because I was like I was trying to avoid things that would end up on like my top ten eventually, but with Q and X. I'm like, you might have to. Uh, I might not be able to avoid it. Yeah, but we're we're a distance from Q and X on on our. Yeah, we got some time. Uh, I'm going to choose Quick Change, uh, which is uh, a wonderful crime comedy. Uh, one of my favorite co- comedies. Co-directed by Bill Murray. Uh, the other director was uh, Howard Franklin, who went yeah. on to do a really good uh, Ouija biopic called uh, Ouija. That is the photographer. A biopic called mm-hmm. The Public Eye, starring Joe Pesci. Oh, uh, I've never seen that one. That, it's really good. Oh, uh, the awesome. Public Eye is excellent, uh, and Quick Change is also excellent. Uh, the premise is a trio of bank thieves played by Bill Murray, Gina Davis, and Randy Quaid. Uh, they, they've, esta- they've staged this elaborate heist where they sneak into a bank. Uh, Bill Murray's dressed as a clown. They get all of the money. They strap it to their bodies. They sneak out as hostages. Uh, uh, James Coburn is... Or uh, not James Coburn. Um, who plays the cop who's on their tail? Oh, um... Oh, it's the dude from uh, uh, All the President's Men. Yeah, yeah. Jason Robards. Jason Robards. You, you, I knew Robards. Jay was right. Yeah. Yeah. J- Jason Robards uh, is, yeah. is the cop who's on their tail. Uh, but the joke of the movie is they've they've successfully robbed the bank. They've gotten away. Now they just have to leave town. But because of one circumstance after another, they're stuck in town. They like their car breaks down, or the train isn't leading out of town, or they they get lost and they you know their directions are all messed up. Uh, meanwhile, the cops are closing in and they're getting increasingly panicked, stuck in town with all of this money. Uh, it's hilarious. Uh, the chemistry between the three leads is excellent. Uh, you get to see just sort of how they relate and what their relationships are like. Bill Murray is peak Bill Murray, uh, just <laughs> where the, the sort of that that sort of asshole devil may care, but you love him anyway. Kind of character that he's just so expert at playing is just full full bore here, and I think he uh, understood that he can play that part, but he's not the centerpiece of the movie. It's actually the story and the chemistry. So I think a lot of his. Maybe that, like, his influence as a director was was part of that. Um, this is one I, I rented a lot from my local video store back in 1990 when it came mm. out. Uh, and it was kind of a big deal, at least amongst my age group, yeah. uh, when it came out as for being this kind of, uh, n- not daring, but uh, unique comedy mm. film. And, uh, I, and I really, really love it. And it's been a long time since I've seen it, but uh, I have nothing but fond memories for it. And it's one I've been meaning to revisit for mm. quite some time, just because it's was a childhood favorite. Yeah, please see Quick Change. It's really, really mm. delightful. Uh, the movie I'm going to pick for the letter Q is a movie that is actually very well acclaimed. And again, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm mostly going for things that have gone under the radar. It's very acclaimed. It was nominated for several Oscars, but 
just no one's talked about it in decades. And that's mm. a shame because I actually think about this movie a lot. I just think it's a very well-crafted uh, story. Mm. And it's probably my favorite film directed by Robert Redford. It's Quiz Show. Oh, I like Quiz Show a lot. Quiz Show kicks ass. Uh, mm. Quiz Show was, I think it was nominated the same year as like Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump and The Shawshank Redemption. So like was, it was the, nobody the, was talking the, about the, it. the fifth ran yeah. of that group. But and... it's a really excellently made motion picture. And it's based on a, on a true story. Uh, about in the 1950s, there was an online TV show called 21. Right. And it was... It was a TV game show. It was a TV game show. It was like Jeopardy, but like really hard. Like incredibly difficult, the trivia on this show. Uh, and it turns out that they fixed the game. And they gave certain competitors the answers in order to build up, you know, sort of dramatic tension. Can this person win again? How many times will this person be unbeatable? That kind of shit. And it was this huge um, ethical uh, uh, scandal uh, that ended up having like a congressional hearing and everything. And it led to um, a lot of people to change the way they look at television. Um, the movie's great. Uh, it stars uh, Ray Fiennes. As uh, I think it's a college professor who joins the show and uh, John Turturro as a sort of an everyday genius who was aware of the fix and benefited from it and then was told to take a dive did gave up his starring role in America's television to this much more uh, uh, sort of family friendly uh, white conservative non-Jewish guy. Uh, who was going to be their new poster boy. And so he decided to blow the whistle, and he ended up uncovering this gigantic scandal. Um, Ray Fiennes is actually really great. He's typically, like... I think he tends to get the most credit for playing heavies, but he's actually just playing a really... Like, a guy who makes a really terrible choice. Like, a really bad, unethical choice, and is conflicted by it. And I think he actually captures that really well. Uh, John Turturro is great as always. Paul Schofield, um, I think he got an Oscar nomination for this. He's really, really good in it too. Um, but it's just a handsomely crafted, excellently done historical drama um, about a little, uh, uh, not little, it's a pretty significant uh, chapter in TV history that people still, people weren't talking about in the 90s. And now, I know most people don't even remember it and they don't even remember the movie that was nominated for Best Picture. So, I want you to see Quiz Show, and I want you to get excited to see Quiz Show, because it's not just, like, the other Best Picture nominee that year. It's really good. Mm. So, anyway, um, Quiz Show. Uh, there's a, a really wonderful scene in Quiz Show where the John Turturro character mm. has to let it be known in court yeah. that he knows what film won the Best Picture in 1955. <laughs> let me tell and you something. I, I knew it was Marty. I knew it was Marty. I saw Marty all the time. I can't, like... It's about a kid from the Bronx. Because, uh, <laughs> In in the story, he was instructed to get that answer wrong. Yeah, it's, and, and, it's like a, you're supposed to lose. Hmm. Not only supposed to lose, you're supposed to lose on the, like what won the Academy Award for Best Picture like a year ago. Hmm. And he was like, "No one's gonna believe that I would bomb that question." I saw, and that's what, he, and like, that's what he's yeah. offended by is that and, he had to it, go out on that question. But but he he did it. He faked, you know, yeah. faked that he didn't know the answer just to make the the drama that much more exciting. Yeah, but he was just told to and, do uh, it. Yeah. But later on, he had to go into court, and like that's what he was determined. It's like, no, I know Marty won Best Picture. <laughs> that was what he had to prove. Yeah, really, really oh, great man. movie. I love that movie. Uh, my my letter R is another Lynn La Lynn Ramsey film. It's Ratcatcher. Okay. I mentioned I was going to do this. This takes place uh, in Glasgow, Scotland, uh, during a garbage strike. Uh, so the the film is. The film is just loaded with garbage. Every shot, there's just garbage in the background. And it is about the kids who live in this neighborhood that is beset by garbage. The, the young boys and girls who are pretty much just sort of free to roam. Um, I love movies about groups of little kids. 
mm. and the lives of children. Um, I'm very fond of The 400 Blows. I'm very fond of uh, Small Change, even more so. I'm very fond of Pichotta. I'm very fond of Los Olvidados. Um, films about uh, little kids and the lives they lead and their perspective is always very interesting to me. And Ratcatcher is one of those greats. Uh, it came out like just around the same time as George Washington as well, which is David Gordon Green film, and they're very similar in a lot of ways. But yeah, Ratcatcher is uh, this very kind of kitchen sink realist drama that take, you know, follows a couple of these kids, and they each have their own kind of uh, dramas and comings and goings and their relationships with their parents and their relationships with one another. But uh, more than anything, it's just sort of a, a sample of the experience of the time. And it feels very nostalgic, mm. but it also feels very honest. And I think it does capture something about the emotional lives of children that n- American films never do. Uh, American films tend to project innocence onto children, you know, sort of outside qualities that adults have about children and don't really explore their entire inner lives and their ups and their downs and their personality uh, traits and their mistakes and their successes. And Lynn Ramsey in these little tiny incidental moments throughout does find the hardships and the mistakes and the joy and in one particularly notable sequence, the utter bliss of being young. Mm. Uh, it's a beautiful film. Oh. It, it's heartbreaking and it's glorious. And uh, it, it's you know, really, really low budget. You can tell Lynn Ramsey's going places. Uh, Lynn Ramsey's own daughter is in it. And Lynn Ramsey named her daughter Lynn Ramsey Jr. And I love that. <laughs> Good for her. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> her daughter is named Lynn Ramsey Jr. That's really That's cool. That's awesome. <laughs> That's super awesome. Okay. Uh, before I tell you the title... Uh, to the movie that I'm recommending mm. for the letter R. I want you to do something for me. Now, some of you may know where I'm going with this. If you don't, follow along on this journey. If you are, uh, don't, not if you're driving, wait until you're, until you're not driving. Uh, if, you're bad, if you're at your computer, if you're on your phone, uh, I want you to go to YouTube. Oh, D. I want you to look up drinking, like drinking, but instead of a G, there's a Skycom on apostrophe. And then all one word, drinking, apostrophe, Stein like Frankenstein. Mm. Drinkenstein, Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> Watch the clip and come back. Okay, now that you've watched it, how much do you hate William? <laughs> <laughs> I unapologetically like. I'm not going to go so far as to say I love, right. but I unapologetically like the movie Rhinestone. Uh, which is considered one of the most notorious like box office bombs and, and critical duds of the 1980s. Uh, we we had the incredible pleasure of interviewing on a podcast for like an hour Phil Alden Robinson, the director of Field of Dreams and Sneakers, and w- one of my favorite filmmakers ever. And he was also a screenwriter who worked on the movie Rhinestone, starring Dolly Parton as a country singer uh, who makes a wager that she can turn anyone into a country music superstar, even what? This incredibly Italian cab driver played by Sylvester Stallone, who has no musical talent whatsoever... By the yes. way, Sylvester Stallone has no musical talent whatsoever. None. So, um... None at all. In a weird way, it's authentic. <laughs> Uh, but we interviewed it's the Pygmalion story. We interviewed yeah. Phil Alden Robinson, and I mentioned Rhinestone, and he was he was he was such a nice man. But he well, was just like I, I was the asshole who brought up Rhinestone. You were the actually, one who yeah. you I forgot one of us yeah. did, and like, and he was just he sort of recoiled. He was like, ah, oh, I'm not proud of that, and mm-hmm. and I was just like, no, I like that one. <laughs> He's just like, really, I don't believe you. I I 
that's actually something I miss about uh, giving interviews is yeah. when I get to gush about a project of an actor or a director that I really like and they hate it. Yeah, like or they like or they think no one else has ever noticed it. it. It's like, yeah. oh, no, what? No, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah, like, no, seriously, I saw something. I Ryan like when, uh, when yeah. Alan Arkush wrote in to, to berate us yeah. for praising Caddyshack yeah. 2. Oh, my God. Yeah, the director of Caddyshack <laughs> 2 was mad at us for recommending Caddyshack 2. <laughs> like that is a career highlight. Yeah. That is a career highlight. Uh, but Rhinestone is it's it's a goofy movie. It is a silly, dumb premise, and Dolly Parton and Sylvester Stallone. Here's the deal: Dolly Parton has enough personality for five movies. Mm-hmm. She, she can carry any film. I think she's an incredibly underrated performer. In addition to being arguably the greatest country music superstar of all time, uh, that that'd be my take anyway. There, I know there are other people who could fight. You know, oh, I think so and so. I'm gonna pick Dolly. Uh. Sylvester Stallone, in my opinion, is an incredibly underrated comedy straight man. Mm. I think if you look at this film's Oscar, and even it's critically derided, but I think it's rather charming, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, he is an incredibly giving actor in comedies. He will endure any indignity, and he knows that he's the brunt of the joke, and he will go for it. And you see him do this incredibly bad song, Drinkenstein where he's a, a a a Frankenstein monster created by beer terrible just terrible but stupid why you've created a monster and they call me Drinkenstein hilarious uh, look I, I will give Stallone I'm coasting a lot of on charm this movie coasts uh, on charm by my point is I think it has charm to spare I will give Stallone a lot of credit for being a fine actor. I mm-hmm. think he's quite a good actor, especially when he's creating a role like Rocky. Oh, yeah. All, all, Impeccable. At least half of his performances as Rocky are great. Yeah, um, I'd say at least two thirds. Yeah. Yeah, like he's especially good in the first Rocky, mm-hmm. especially good in Rocky Balboa and Creed. Like I, those are some really good performances. I think Rocky, Rocky 2, Rocky mm-hmm. Balboa, Creed and Creed 2, even though mm-hmm. he's not in Creed 2 very much, he's great. Yeah. 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 Um, I also think he thought he was more talented than he was. So he like the tried world to, was trying to tell him that and he yeah, sort of believed it. So but. yeah, he kind of, kind of believed, yeah, I could be a singer. <laughs> no. The irony is no, that the soundtrack, do that. the soundtrack to Rhinestone was actually a bit of a hit and it spawned like two hit singles for Dolly Parton. Yeah, Dolly fine. Parton songs did really, really well I, in this I, movie. I will do nothing ever to impugn anything about Dolly Parton. I have Dolly Parton's vaccine in my body right now. The Moderna <laughs> vaccine was was funded by Dolly Parton, by the way. Like she was a significant backer of it. Thank you, Dolly. <laughs> Thank you for getting us through this fucking uh, nightmare. See, now I feel like an asshole for getting the Pfizer. I know. Oh, you, I know. I'm just stupid. <laughs> but uh, in any case, listen, Rhinestone. It's a stupid movie. I'm not going to pretend it's not a stupid movie, but I find it charmingly stupid. Mm. And I think if that's something you're ever in the mood for, and we all know sometimes we are, don't let Rhinestone pass you by. This is a fun, we've just watched two movies, now let's watch something silly and loopy at midnight at like a slumber party kind of vibe. Like it's, that's a good fun movie to watch. Yeah. That's what I will say. Is it bad? Arguably. Fun, yes. <laughs> like a, a lot of the entries on your list are, this is really stupid, but. Well, and um, I think that's something that occasionally yeah. as critics we need to go to bad for, and I thought this list would be a fun opportunity to do that. Yeah. So, especially yeah. for movies I don't get to talk about very often, like Rhinestone. So well, there you go. Well, I have a music film as my S. Ooh. Uh, it's a biopic of a, a musician. It's called Sid and Nancy. 
Oh, I've actually never seen this either. <gasps> I know. Sid and Nancy is I was too busy watching Rhinestone. <laughs> <laughs> Sid and Nancy, directed by Alex Cox, uh, one of yeah. the one of the great uh, punk rock rebels of the cinema world. Mm. He did Repo Man, a film that I saw in my 30s, and I regret not having seen it earlier. Uh, <laughs> I should have seen it when I was 18. What was I thinking? Um, but yeah, Sid and Nancy, made in the mid-80s, and it's a biopic of Sid Vicious and his relationship with Nancy Spungen and their addiction and their addiction and their addiction and her murder <laughs> yeah. by Sid. Uh, yeah, it's pretty fucked <laughs> it, up, it's, it's a really fucked up story. Yeah, um, yeah he, he stabbed her to death in a hotel room. That's pretty well known. Um, but it's also about sort of the punk rock ethos, what it is to be a punker, what it is to hate uh, the establishment, what it is to make that kind of music, to live life your way, and indeed Sid Vicious does a cover of My Way, which is notable because uh, Sid Vicious, uh, in real life, he sang My Way, the old mm-hmm. uh, lounge standard, I suppose. Yeah, it was a uh, Sinatra tune, I think, S- mostly, yeah, and, then um, I think, and he made it his own. Yeah, Incredible uh, cover. Well, arguably was, one of the best covers I've ever heard. But I think because of some sort of rights issue, they were never able to release a recording of it. Like, mm. a, he performed it live once, and it was on tape, but then they weren't able to get the music again for it. Mm. Uh, so there's video of it, but you can't hear him singing. So you get to see Gary Oldman playing Sid Vicious, performing My Way. That's the next best thing. Uh, he's pretty good, so, yeah, actually. They, they he's actually of, they, he, he gets the gets performance, performance right, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's great in this I've seen movie. that clip. I haven't seen the movie, yeah. but I've seen Gary Oldman do it. I'm like, yeah, that's about right. Yeah, yeah. Chloe yeah. Webb plays Nancy Sponge, and she's really great. Uh, and if you've ever had a bad relationship, you recognize everything in this movie. About God, I hope not everything. The, the, well, maybe not the drugs and the killing, but yeah. you know the, the codependency and the whining at one another and the fighting and how you start to use that as an excuse for your passion. Uh, but yeah, also the the sort of it's a little microcosm of the history of punk rock. And if you want to live the punk lifestyle, you die. That's what punk is all about. It's about yeah. living so extreme that you die. That's not why there aren't a lot of aging punkers out there. And Sid, Sid and Nancy tells you why. It's an exciting story. Uh, it's a, about a really notable, important band. Uh, and I think uh, it's it's a I think it's something about music that most people should know. Mm. And Alex Cox did a wonderful job of depicting it. All right, great. Um, well, it's the Sex Pistols, by the way. I don't no, think no, I said that it was the name yeah, of the band. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> In case you didn't know, yeah, it's from the Sex Pistols. Um, again, I couldn't pick a more different film. Uh, this is a film we recently talked about. Uh, on a Patreon podcast. Uh, so if you're familiar with the Patreon, this might seem a little redundant, but we never got a chance to talk about it elsewhere. And it's a movie that I think has been unfairly forgotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do want to spread the word because, well, we give Disney a lot of shit. And I oh, think boy, they've earned it, do. especially as, like, as a corporation, at least. They, they do a lot of shitty things, I think. But they've also made a lot of great movies, and they've given a lot of filmmakers an opportunity to make great stuff over the years. And one of their earliest films that is really charming and wonderful, that is not on Disney Plus for some reason, and is a little hard to find, uh, is a film called So Dear to My Heart. Oh, yeah. Which is, which is yeah. treacly. It's very saccharine. Mm. Even at the time, like, it was making out like 1948. And even at the time, people were just like, Jesus, Disney, take it down a notch. <laughs> like, I know you like retro shit, but seriously, scale it the fuck back. But it's very well made. It is about a young boy at the turn of the century, turn of the last century, uh, who uh, basically he lives on a farm with his grandmother. His parents died. And his the sheep in the barn uh, gives birth. And one of the, the sheep is literally a black sheep. It's got black wool. And... Black wool doesn't sell because 
there's a stigma against black sheep, but also it's the wool is only good for making clothes of mourning, and that's considered, you know, bad luck. So um, the sheep is not destined to do well, but the boy takes a shine to the sheep and insists that he's going to keep raising the sheep. And the grandma's like, I'm not going to keep an animal on my farm that doesn't earn its keep. And so the kid gets it in his head that the only way to save this sheep is to go to the county fair and have it win like the best sheep contest. You know, like when they judge various livestock. Um, so the kid is doing everything he can to try to protect his sheep and grandma thinks he's just being selfish and she doesn't know how selfless he's really, really being. It's really sweet. It's really earnest. And one of the coolest things in it though, is that it actually has, even though it's a live action film, it has a lot of animated segments and the animated segments are unbelievably gorgeous. <laughs> Seriously, the multiplane camera uh, uh, animation at the beginning is some of the best I've ever seen filmed. There's incredible. There's this uh, incredible animated sequence with like medieval sword fights and dragons and shit, and it's really fucking cool. And I'm surprised they don't just use that sequence like in a vacuum, just like occasionally on clips, just to show how cool Disney can be. Um. It's just, it's a stunner. Uh, the animation is stunning. The production design and everything is just incredibly, just right out of a storybook. Um, again, the story, simple. Saccharine. Almost offensively so. But if that's something you're in the mood for, and I know a lot of people who love Disney specifically for that reason, I do not understand why this movie has been swept under the rug. Mm. I do not. It's it's certainly not bad. It's not offensive. Like a lot of the films of the of that era were... You know, there's a reason why we don't see Song of the South. Those problems are not in this. It's not about that. Mm. Um, it's a sweet film. And I do hope more people get to see it at some point. So if you get a chance, please do. Please do check it yeah, out. So so dear to my heart. Um, yeah, if, if if you have an aversion to Sweet Treacle, then it's not for you. No, <laughs> yeah. no, 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 no. It's That's not for the cynical hearted. It's no, just not. No, no. 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 There, but if, if you have that in you, we're yeah, checking there, out. There's, yeah, there's not a whit of cynicism in that one. Yeah. Uh, there's not a bit of cynicism in uh, in my tea, um, I suppose. I guess there's a little bit because a lot of it is backstage drama as to uh, what the life of high opera was like in England uh, back in, in the 1800s. It's Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy. I Great love movie. Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy. It's a, a biography of Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, William Gilbert and Sir Arthur Sullivan, who made some of the most popular light operettas of the time, which was a dominant uh, entertainment option at a certain point in England's history. Mm -hmm. And uh, it comes at a point in their career when they were kind of hitting a slump. They felt like they were repeating themselves. They already had their biggest hits with Pirates of Penzance and Pinafore, and they didn't really know what to do next. And uh, it's about sort of the creative struggle, how to find inspiration. Uh, William Gilbert ended up going to this kind of... um, uh, traveling Japanese showcase uh, where they were showing things because before uh, people could travel the world, there's a great deal of money to be made by gathering up exotic things from exotic lands and traveling. And we the use world exotic in that air quotes, is, by yeah, the way. Ex- you can't see the air quotes. They're, no, right, they're no, there. Exotic things. That is things from not outside of your own country. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and making, he, making a traveling show. I know yeah, like Americans would do this show, too. Like yeah. Wild Bill would take his whole Wild West show and go to Europe yeah, and he would exactly, do rodeos exactly. and things because people can't go to the Wild West. They mm-hmm. had to bring it to them. Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, so yeah, the, and this, some of these things are really a, horrible and exploitative. Oh I, no, yeah, yeah. most of them were. Yeah. Most well, of them were incredibly exploitative. A lot of them were uh, just lied about the culture or mm-hmm. just perpetuated certain stereotypes about the culture uh, that they were they mm-hmm. attended to be that people they were wanted selling. To, people um, wanted yeah. to see the lie that they already knew. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, William Gilbert got to go to one of these traveling shows about Japan and was inspired to write the Mikado, mm-hmm. uh, which is. Also, when it's a beautiful musical, but it's also uh, really offensive because it gets nothing right about Japan. It's like Japan is seen through a British man who only went to a traveling show once. Mm. And that's all he understands about Japanese culture. But it is about the process of writing and staging the Mikado, gathering up all the actors, having the old troupe back together. If you're into theater... You're gonna love Topsy Turvy. Just <laughs> if you've ever been bitten by the theater bug, you're gonna love Topsy Turvy. It understands that weird sort of hugely intense camaraderie that happens with a theater troupe that I don't think happens with any other group of people who work together. Mm-hmm. And it also really understands the personalities and the way Gilbert and Sullivan themselves got along and how they both thought that one was upstaging the other in terms because uh, Gilbert yeah. wrote the lyrics and. And came up with the stories, and Sullivan wrote all of the music. And yeah, they, there's uh, the very competitive. Yeah. yeah, and and in addition to that, it's also a, sort of a cute little comedy film as well. And there's a, a few fun anachronisms. I love the scene where Sir Arthur Sullivan encounters a fountain pen for the first time. Yeah, the, the ink is inside. The, the yeah, the ink pen? is inside the pen. He just, he just writes it without dipping it and puts the cap back on. It's like oh, modern technology. What a wonderful <laughs> thing. Uh, I think the movie gets a little distracted yeah. by moments like that, but it's really good. Well, I, it, I it's, like it. it's very long, and I think yeah. uh, it, it director Mike Lee allows it to breathe. Those little moments give yeah. it a lot of life and humanity, that it gets a little bit distracted and lets us live with the characters for a long time. Uh, it gets us a, a full idea as to what their lives were like and how theater sort of bled into everything they hmm. did. Uh I'm 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 in my mid forties now. I still might be the youngest person who likes this movie. This is like <laughs> something you take your grandparents to I'm see. I'm younger than you, uh, and I like this movie a lot. Okay. Um, I, okay. I remember seeing it in the theater, and I was definitely the only person in the theater like under sixty five. And mm. uh, I, I don't care. I love this film. It is so All good. Right. Uh, well, my pick is uh, I I think it's a really cool thriller that helped launch the career of a, I, I think a pretty noteworthy filmmaker, Alejandro Amenabar. Hmm. Uh, who is best known now for making films like um, The Others with Nicole Kidman. He won an Academy Award for directing The Sea Inside uh, with Javier Bardem. Uh, He did the film Open Your Eyes, which was eventually remade into Vanilla Sky. Um, But his first film from 1996 is a really cool film uh, called Tesis, which is, uh, I might be pronouncing that slightly off, but it's uh, Spanish for thesis. Hmm. Uh, And it is about a young woman who's going to film school and she is planning to write her thesis project on extremely violent cinema. She's interested in studying the most violent cinema that exists. And while she is searching through the archives at her school, she discovers what might be a snuff film. My, my. So she hooks up with the only other like guy at the school who is into violent cult horror filmmaking and they start analyzing this video in an attempt to sort of figure out is it fake or not and they're trying to determine everything from what can we do to try to figure out what kind of camera it was shot on what can we do to figure out where it was filmed what can we do to figure Mm -hmm. out like if this is a secret edit or not um if you are a junkie for 
uh, like AV nerd stuff, <laughs> especially if you were around in the '90s when like VHS was still like the dominant medium. Uh, this movie's gonna hit you real hard. It's really, really just absolute movie geekery. Um, as a as a thriller, it's not the greatest ever, and I think eventually it just sort of settles in and just becomes kind of a '90s thriller. But the setup is really, really great. I think it understands the obsessions uh, inherent to the characters. Um, and it's kind of cool to see this kind of um, this kind of punk rock film school version of the movie Blow Up, but <laughs> with like gory home videos. I think that's really neat. Um, so it's 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 overlooked. It's worth checking out if you if you like horror movies or you like AV geek movie movies. So yeah, definitely yeah. worth checking out. Yeah. Uh, let's see what we got here. Letter U. Uh, well, sp- speaking of punk rock, uh, this is one of my favorite concert films. It's called Urg, yeah. a music war. U R G H. Urg. I need to see this one of these days. Uh, yeah, I've, I'm tired of you talking up this movie and me uh, not being able to contribute. Gotta, gotta watch it, man. Yeah. Uh, you can get it through the Warner Archive. Do it fast. Uh, Urg, a music war is just a series of concerts. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no big festival. It's actually filmed in several locations. But what it did was try to capture, and it did successfully, I think the big movement of sort of like post-punk and new wave that was really coming to the fore in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, mm-hmm. um, when um, a lot of new things were being tried and a lot of new acts were coming into the into being and a lot of new sort of like synth and electronic music was being experimented with in really interesting ways. Um, the police were the big headliner for the movie because they were the biggest act at the time. And they're actually the the least interesting act in the movie, <laughs> uh, but instead you also have uh, and I'm going to list off just all of the bands in this: a Wall of Voodoo, Toya Wilcox, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, Oingo Boingo, uh, XTC, uh, the members, the Go Go's, Klaus Nomi. If you know, Klaus, look up just a picture of Klaus Nomi. Uh, oh yeah, Klaus Nomi is yeah, Klaus Nomi is amazing. Legend. Um, the Alley Cats, Jules Holland, Steel Pulse, Devo is in it. Echo and the Bunnymen, uh, the Cramps have a bit. <laughs> um, you're watching this movie, it's a concert film, and it's rated R, and you're wondering why. These aren't, like, very dirty songs, you know, they're not singing about anything. And then Lux Interior from The Cramps appears, wearing pants that are three sizes too small for him. <laughs> and he's and, and he's singing, and he gets, starts going wild, and he's essentially just filleting the microphone on stage. It's like, okay, I understand now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joan Jett is in it, Peru Boo, Gary Newman uh, has this really weird thing that he sets in for his bit. Uh, the Flesh Tones, The Gang of Four, uh, X has a number in it, uh, and there's even a band called The Surf Punks, which nobody's heard of anymore. Mm. But uh, I picked up a Surf Punks record uh, inspired by this film, and The Surf Punks are exactly my jam. Uh, if you are into weird, cool, outre, early 80s synth pop, boy mm. howdy, this is right up your alley. Nice. Uh, it's so good. <laughs> and uh, and I admit it's because I like this kind of music. Mm. But I think it's also a good a, a good way to sort of open up and expand how exciting the 1980s were in terms of pop music and what what was going on left of the dial. It wasn't just the one hit Wonderland stuff. Uh, it, there was a lot of like really f- fun, uh, naughty uh, subversion going on in in a lot of uh, early 80s music that I think is fully explored in something like Urga Music War. Yeah. Um, okay, well, uh, for my pick for the letter U, uh, I'm going to pick a genre I don't talk about a lot, even mm. though I'm really, really fond of it. I don't much care for sports. 
in real life. I've got nothing against it. I've just never been terribly invested in it. But I love sports movies. Hmm. Sports movies are great because they explain to me why I should care about the competition. And if you just put a baseball game in front of me, I'll be like, oh, I hope the people in the blue hats win. Like, that's hmm. where I'll be. That's all the emotional investment I have. Well, you're from L.A., so you chose the right team. I, fine. <laughs> I, I picked a random color, but fine. Uh, but in any case, uh, uh, but I love sports movies because they, they help me get invested in the competition and uh, one of my favorite underrated sports movies is a film by Walter Hill called Undisputed. Mm, I haven't seen this one. You've recommended uh, it before. It's a cool flick. Uh, it's a prison boxing movie. And uh, it's uh, it stars Ving Rhames as the heavyweight champion of the world. Uh, and he has been put in maximum security prison uh, for he's he's been accused of sexual assault. He maintains his innocence, but he is probably did it. Uh and uh, what he finds is that he is entered into a prison, which is really big in the prison boxing circuit. And they have like a current champ who is played by Wesley Snipes, who is a self-confessed murderer. So neither of the characters are underdogs. <laughs> so you don't know, you know, they're going to fight each other, but neither of them wants to do it. Uh, Ving Rhames definitely doesn't want to do it because what's in it for him? He's used to playing for millions of dollars, and it's only when a mafioso boxing enthusiast who's like been in jail and is going to die in jail is played by Peter Falk in one of his last performances. He's really great in it. Um, he wants to see this fight. He gets to see it in person. He's gonna <laughs> he's gonna charge money for like mafiosos to go see it in person, like smuggle him into the prison. It's gonna be a big fucking deal. It's gonna be totally off the books. Uh, but uh, will Wesley Snipes do it and will Ving Rhames do it? Probably not. Except, of course, we know they will because it's a movie. But that final fight, which is really just handsomely shot, Walter Hill is a very efficient, effective filmmaker, uh, you just don't know who's going to win. Okay. You just have no idea because there's no underdog who's like going to try to get the girl or anything. They're both kind of bad people. So it's really fascinating. And it led to a couple of good straight-to-video sequels. The second one's okay, but you should see it because it introduces Scott Adkins' uh, character, mm. uh, who is a sort of a, a UFC fighter in Russia. And then the third film, Undisputed 3, is where Scott Adkins becomes the main character. And that movie fucking kills. That is one of the better American fight movies I've ever seen. Even though it's like the straight-to-video thing that nobody saw. It's really cool. Uh, so definitely check out Undisputed 1 and 3 at least. They're really neat mm. flicks. Anyway. Letter V, Valerian. Okay. Yeah, I, I love Valerian. I've talked about Valerian a yeah. lot. Uh, it's it's one of the best looking science fiction movies to come along in a long time. Yeah. Oh, ever. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, ever really. Uh, a lot of really innovative action sequences. Uh, there's a sequence where Valerian, the main character played by Dane DeHaan, is in two dimensions simultaneously. Yeah. So and, he's like running from people in one dimension, but we see him in another dimension where he's not running from anybody. Yeah. And like walls exist in mm. one dimension, but not another. And boy, mm. does that sound complicated. It's I, impressive. How they pull and, it and they actually pull yeah. out like you can follow what's going on. Like his hand yeah. is in one dimension, but the rest of his him yeah. is in another. There's a really interesting kind of bickersome, incredibly European romance between the two leads, uh, yeah. Valerian and Laureline. Uh, Laura Lane's played by Cara Delevingne, who I think is the MVP of the movie. Really. She keeps asking. Dane DeHaan's um, a little miscast. He's, he needs yeah, to be a bit more cocky. He needs to be like a Han Solo type, and they cast this kind of broody actor to play yeah. the part. He's, I, he's a little miscast. Yeah. It's the worst part of the movie. 
but it's it's not enough to distract from just how dazzling everything yeah. is. Just everything is colorful and gorgeous, yeah. and it's it's filmed in such a way that we actually get to see it. Yeah, uh, I've really seen a lot. Of, yeah, I've seen a lot of like big fantasy movies with amazing special effects. Like you know, the latest Star Wars movie has amazing special effects, but it doesn't let us like pause and look yeah. enough. Like, uh, like like one of the way, best like, things is like when you like go into like Mos Eisley mm. and like we actually get to look around and see yeah, all the people like, like you know, look at all the people mm. in the cantina drink it in yeah, you're in and another and world enjoy it for a minute and then we'll move yeah on. and there was an equivalent scene in Star Wars: The Force Awakens mm. where they go into a very Mos Eisley like place where it's yeah. full but. Uh, that was filmed in such a way where the camera's sort of like fluidly moving through the scene yeah. and we're sort of glancing at things as we zip past them. It's like, no, I want to see that. Give us a few static shots of yeah. what this thing is and like let our imaginations go wild for a second. I yeah. think Valerian is one of the few recent like effects driven science fiction movies I've seen that does that. That mm. lets, lets us do that. We're on a sightseeing tour. Yeah. Plus, yeah. Uh, plus Ethan Hawke is a cowboy pimp and Rihanna is <laughs> a shape-shifting sex worker and there's like all yeah. kinds of fun stuff in it. It's really wild. Well, I, I, the director is yeah. a shit, and um, yeah, he's, 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 he's a creep. He's a, uh, he's a super creep, and that sucks. Mm-hmm. It really sucks. Uh, I've I've liked several of his movies over the years, and mm-hmm. I'm in a period where I'm reassessing his whole filmography. But uh, Valerian is still a gorgeous wonder, and even just the opening five minutes is yeah, a great the, the, sci-fi the, the, short the little, film of itself. The little prologue is awesome, yeah. uh, and. Uh, something else I appreciate about Valerian, which I actually didn't really notice until like the second time I had watched it, but it's a film about nonviolence. Yes, it is. Uh, there's, you know, there's weapons and there's gunfire, but you'll notice that Valerian uh, and Laureline are not badasses because they kill. In fact, yeah. they go out of their way not to. And in fact, yeah. not killing is a big important part of that movie. Yeah, and it's a film ultimately been... about pacifism. Yeah. And yeah, and, and I think that might be one of the main reasons it wasn't successful. It was mm-hmm. this hugely expensive production and it made no money, and at least not in the United no, States. No, gigantic box office uh, disaster. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that might be a big part of it. Even when you go to see a, a superhero movie and they're just killing robots, they're at least killing. You yeah, get to still see the violence. You get, you get, that, yeah. you get that kick, you yeah, know? Yeah. yeah. The, and I think that kick is absent from Valerian, and I love that. And it still has amazing action sequences. The bit where Valerian is like punching his way through like 20 different environments from like one over the shoulder shot, and you get mm. to see him like each room is an entirely different universe. Mm. That scene's dazzling. That scene is a dazzling action sequence. It's like, yeah, like he bursts through a wall and all of a sudden he's like in this underwater environment and then he's in a farm environment and then he's just in a hallway. And then he's in this weird kaleidoscope Mm. and there's no explanation for it whatsoever. Mm. It's it's cool. There's so much cool cool. stuff in it. I I have really mixed feelings because of the filmmaker and I just, I'm I'm, I'm really bummed out because I really liked Valerian a lot and I'm just, it's hard for me to distance myself. But I, there will come a time when maybe I can just sit down and enjoy it again, and I'm hoping that they will come because, you know, I do enjoy it. And yeah, that's yeah. it's. It, but on the other hand, if that day doesn't come, the guy's a creep. Fuck him. Mm. Um, moving on. Um, let's see. We're on V. Oh, um, <laughs> not that long ago, um, I was talking uh, to my wife and partner Michelle, and um, she was like, "I was like, what do you want to watch?" We have to watch so much stuff that I have to watch for work. What do you mm. want to watch tonight? And she was like, do you have anything that's like clueless but with vampires? And I was like, I very specifically have clueless but with vampires. <laughs> uh, there is a really wonderful movie from Amy Heckerling, the director of Clueless, starring Alicia Silverstone, also the star of Clueless, yeah. and also starring Kristen Ritter, Malcolm McDowell, uh, 
It's called Vamps, and it is charming as fuck. Uh, oh, also it stars Dan Stevens, who when I first saw the oh, movie, no I, when I first saw the movie, I didn't know how cool Dan Stevens was, and now I'm a huge fan. So when I watched it, I'm like, oh, I forgot Dan Stevens was in this. Um, Alicia Silverstone is uh, a vampire in living in modern day New York, and uh, she's got a roommate, another vampire played by Kristen Ritter. Uh, they were both sired by Sigourney Weaver, and it's all about them just trying to go about their business, just trying to live their lives, date. They got to go to night school, but they're going to school, and um, it's it's very much that sort of like you know young women trying to make it in New York, except one of them happens to be two hundred years old, and uh, it's about sort of the way that modern day uh, modern the modern day is starting to encroach onto the fantasy fairy tale story of being a creature of the night. Yeah. Uh, for example, uh, nowadays it's harder for vampires to live completely under the radar, and the IRS is after them, and they mm-hmm. need to find a way to somehow like deal with all of their back taxes and identity paperwork, mm-hmm. or they're gonna people are gonna find out that vampires are real. So that's a that's a huge subplot. Uh, Kristen Ritter starts dating a young Dan Stevens, and he's so handsome and sexy, and uh, it turns out that he's Van Helsing's son, and Van Helsing <laughs> is played by and Van Helsing is played by Wallace Shawn. Oh my and god, that's so cool. It was also in Clueless. Also in Clueless. Mm-hmm. It's got that same wonderful humor in Clueless. It's got that same like underneath like that heart, that genuineness from Clueless. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really touching. It's really silly and funny. It's super clever. I don't know why more people aren't talking about it because Clueless is just a, considered a classic, and this is like Clueless but with vampires, and it's as about as good as you would as you would want that to be. Uh, please see Vamps. It's super fucking great. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen Vamps, and yeah. I've heard good things. Yeah, it's and not, and not just from you. No, no, it's it's an unbelievably charming, and the mm. people who've seen it love it as well. They should. Uh, but yeah, okay. What's your what's your mm. pick for the letter W? Uh, Wings of Desire. Okay. If you haven't yeah. seen Wings yeah, of Desire, it's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's just a brilliant motion picture. I feel like I don't even need to recommend Wings of Desire. It's yeah. by, uh, by Vim Vendors. It came out in the late 80s. And uh, the story is about an angel. Mm. Uh, like winged angel from heaven type of angel played by Bruno Ganz. And uh, he uh, falls in love with a young circus performer. Uh, now, in this world, angels are always around us, but they're invisible. Uh, they can observe you, and they don't quite understand a lot of what humanity is all about, but he does start uh, this angel uh, under starts to understand what love is and kind of falls in love kind of in an angelly sort of way uh, with this uh, performer and decides to fall, decides to uh, give up being an angel. So uh, he can live with a human woman. And uh, it's about sort of that process of discovering all of these uh, beautiful tiny human things that make our lives our lives uh to put a button on this we got peter falk who uh plays uh a fellow who seems to be able to see angels well, he's playing and peter falk he's yeah playing he's, himself yeah he's like but, making a movie in town that, uh, yeah i guess he's playing he's playing an actor no, he's, he's not he's, explicitly called peter falk but he's playing he's peter playing falk. peter falk yeah uh, so yeah, he's, he's an actor, he's in town, and he under, he can kind of see the angels, maybe? Yeah. And we learn over the course of the movie that he himself is also a fallen angel. Yeah. And he does things like, hey, if you do this with your hands, it feels really good. Like, 
Let me recommend some good coffee to you. Peter like, Falk yeah. is so fucking magical in this movie. He's yeah, like, he's yeah. a uh, he's. Uh, it's weird to say he's my favorite part of the movie because mm-hmm. the actual central storyline is so touching and romantic and mm-hmm. human. But Peter Falk is like yeah. absolutely next level legendary. Yeah, but in it. but you, you you use the perfect words. It is touching. It is romantic. And it is human. It, it yeah. deals with uh, love in an intensely romantic way, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's just such a beautiful love story. Uh, it was remade in uh, the United States as a film called City of Angels. Uh, the Bruno Gans character is now played by Nicolas Cage, mm-hmm. and it's it, got it's, Meg Ryan, and, got, and and it's far more American. It's like this yeah. bigger, more melodramatic it, story. It's not bad, it's, but yeah. it's it's just it's, it's got no. It's the soul, it's, it's it's a little soulless. It's just basically yeah. like generic mainstream sentiment. Yeah, yeah. it's it's I, fine, but it just turns it into and, a plot. And, yeah. and Vim Vendors, you know, he's he's dealing with sentiment, but he's he's coming by it so much more earnestly. He he really believes in the statements that he's he's making. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's on the Criterion Channel. It's a famous movie. Watch Wings of Desire. Um, For once, I actually have a movie that is like not entirely dissimilar. It is at the very least a a very like artsy romance. Okay, Um, and it is a movie that I, I. People didn't even talk about it at the time, and now is almost completely forgotten. Even though it stars Keanu Reeves, it's called A Walk in the Clouds. Okay, I haven't seen A Walk in the Clouds either. This movie is sweet. Uh, this is actually, it's a remake of a 1940s Italian movie, which I admit I haven't seen. So maybe the original is better. I don't know. Uh, but it's directed by Alfonso Arau. And it stars Keanu Reeves as a World War II veteran who is returning home. And uh, he finds out that the woman he like married really quickly just before the war is not into it at all. And he's kind of lost and doesn't know what to do. And while he is in search of work, he meets a woman on a train or a bus, I forget. And she's pregnant and the husband is not in the picture, and she has to return home to her extremely traditional family, mm-hmm. uh, led by uh, uh, Giancarlo Giannini and Anthony Quinn. Mm-hmm. And they agree that Keanu Reeves will pretend to be her husband, and then slip off in the middle of the night, and the family will say, like, oh, you were abandoned by your husband, it's not your fault. As opposed to... You know, oh, you're a fallen woman or some bullshit. Mm. Problem is, she's unbelievably charming, and uh, he's actually invited to like stay and work on their family vineyard, which is incredibly gorgeous. Yeah. And it's just yeah. so damned That's romantic and sweet. Sun dappled photography. Yeah. I've, I've seen enough of it to know the photography. It's anyway. gorgeous. It's a gorgeous, yeah. gorgeous film. It's very sentimental, but I think it earns it. Actually, it's <clears throat> the high concept is get, comes in and then it gets out of the way. Mm. And then it's just Keanu Reeves trying to win over this family. Um, you know, there's a deception involved. And of course, he is still technically married. Will they be able to get over that? Or will he just have to leave and have it be that kind of bitter, sad, bittersweet ending? Um, but this movie just works. It's just uh, incredibly sentimental, but a, a very, very effective motion picture. And it's rare to see a movie, that, a Western movie, as you said, the City of Angels movie just doesn't quite work. To just go for that unabashed, earnest romanticism and yeah. and win it and win it over. And I think Walk in the Clouds is one of the few films I can think of that does, yeah. at least in the last twenty years or so. Right. Um, we got we got uh, three more letters left. Yeah. Let's burn X, through it. X, Y, and Z. Um, what did I'm X, very curious. Yeah, what you X, X was a little bit of a tough one. No, yeah. I'm not choosing one of the X Men movies. No. Uh, 
I, I like some of the X-Men movies just fine, but no, I'm not, right. not going to not gonna choose an X-Men movie. No, um, Joan Chen uh, directed Ooh. a movie in the late ah. 90s called Shu Shu the Sent Down Girl. And, there you uh, it, go. It's, um, it takes place in the 1970s during the Cultural Revolution in China, and it is about a young girl. She's a teenager. And she, uh, during the revolution, is sent out into the countryside uh, to prepare to take charge of the girls' cavalry when she gets back. Right. And uh, she's put in the care of uh, a a silent eunuch. He's there to sort of look after her and make sure she's okay. And she is preparing herself to go back into the city and, like, is uh, very revolution-minded and she's very business-minded and is really preparing herself. And it doesn't take... uh, it doesn't take her or her her keeper very long to realize that she is being uh, pushed out of the way. She's been sent Mm -hmm. there just forever. They're never going to come back for her. And it, it's this really sad process of how we realize how um, she has been discarded. She realizes that she's been discarded and how now she has pretty much no options for survival. This guy can look after her, but, you know, he's he's like a, a guy who lives in the mountains. He's like a hermit. He lives in a cave. He can't really provide for her. Yeah. Uh, so she begins to sort of explore her options, and she ends up going down some pretty dark paths in order to survive. And um, some really horrible things begin happening to her. But it is told with uh, a, re- a really kind of um, uh, touching amount, acknowledgement of pain. Mm. Um, it, it it's not trying to make uh, it's not trying to make like melodramatic hay out of her tragedy. It's actually trying to feel it. It's really getting down there next to this young this teenage girl's experience and understanding just how badly a lot of people were treated during this revolution and how uh, it it kind of just shoved people aside. Um, I do like stories about discarded people. I was very fond of Nomadland. I was mm. very fond of uh, the uh, Hirokazu Koreeda film Shoplifters. Uh, this notion that there are people who are just sort of cast aside that we don't really think about. Yeah. And uh, they are victims of a lot of cultural movements. And I think uh, Joan Chen uh, really understood that. And Shushi the Sent Down Girl is, is really, uh, really poignant about that. Uh, it, it ends badly. It's actually not a fun film to watch, but I think it's very, very effective. Okay. Uh, I'm, I couldn't pick a more different film. Uh, I am picking a film that is almost completely unknown. I can't think of a single person I've ever talked to about this film who were like, oh, I saw that. Uh, it is called X Change. The letter X, change, all one word. Okay. It is a sci-fi film directed by Alan Moyle, who directed uh, Empire Records and Pump Up the Volume. Right. Uh, it stars uh, uh, Kim Coates and Kyle MacLachlan and Stephen Baldwin, and uh, it is a sort of a sci-fi conspiracy noir. It takes place in the near future. A lot of scientific advancements have uh, changed the way in which we live. A lot of the uh, mm. sort of the the more difficult physical labor is all done by clones, and all of the clones look like Stephen Baldwin. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Uh, but one, I of, kid Stephen but one, one of the weirder and more like um, Philip K. Dick kind of premises that they have in the film is that there is a new mode of immediate international travel. And what it is, is body swapping. Mm. You can hook yourself up to a machine and switch bodies with anyone else in the world. They'll have your body. 
you'll have theirs, and then you come back and you switch back your mind after your business trip or vacation is over or whatever. That's fun. Yeah, it's a neat idea. It raises a lot of ethical questions. What can you or cannot do with your body? And there's a guy who finds out that his body uh, was being used by a terrorist. And now he's in a lot of trouble. Uh, And the terrorist has not shown up for the exchange. And now this guy is wanted. And uh, he, the only way he can uh, hide himself is to put himself in the body of a clone. So he puts himself in a body of one of these clones. And of course, there are millions of Stephen Baldwins everywhere. And he's trying to hide out and solve the mystery. And it's not amazing, but for a low-budget, like, straight-to-video sci-fi thriller from, like, the year 2000 that nobody's ever heard of, it's surprisingly (laughs) clever. There's a lot of interesting ideas in it. And I ended up really getting wrapped up in just through the the, the gumption of it. Just like, you know, like, listen, we have no money. And I know everyone would pretty much prefer that we make some kind of cheap erotic thriller that we can play at 11 o'clock on cable. But what if we took that same budget and did something clever and fun? And <laughs> so they made a fun film that nobody talks about. And if, if it's ever on Tubi or something, check out X Change. It's a neat little flick. All right, two letters to go. Two letters to go. Uh, why? Uh, because ye- we like you. Uh, <laughs> yee Yee, a one and a two. Uh, from Edward Yang. Uh, oh, wow. It's, okay. uh, realist family drama from uh, from Taiwan. Uh and it is about, um, it's actually just, I, it, I can't really describe it in any, any other way than to mm. say it's about a family. It's mm. about a family who are living together. They're just a regular old middle-class family and the everyday family struggles. Mm. Uh, there's a young boy who's an aspiring photographer. As a dad, he's unhappy with sort of his, his career lot. And mm. there's, you know, grandma, grandpa, uh, and it's life. It's just life. Mm. Uh, it's been said, uh, th- there's a quote I ran aground on uh, back, back when I was young, where uh, they said that, and this was used just to d- disparage TV, uh, but it was that uh, theater is life, cinema is art, television is furniture, was the third part. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, theater is very life, because theater is very alive in front of you, and it's actually uh, you know something that is... is because it's really happening, you're actually get to seeing real life, no matter how artificial a theater might be, because there's actors in the room with you. Cinema, because it's more technologically bent, uh, is more interested in uh, sort of the artistic setup of, of actually presenting this, uh, a drama to you. Um, that discounts films like Yee Yee, which uh, do capture a very important kind of realism, and there's a certain kind of realist cinema, especially of... Um, uh, that area of the world, like uh, Taiwan and China and Japan, uh, that is actually very interested in delving into little tiny details of everyday life and somehow making it seem like the most exhilarating drama (laughs) that you've ever experienced. So just living with this family is an exhilarating experience and little tiny moments, little tiny moments of triumph when... Uh, when the little boy discovers that he, he can take really in excellent pictures of the backs of people's heads, for instance, uh, feels like you're really getting to know the actual soul of humanity. Uh, it is disarming. It's really, really beautiful. Uh, 
do yourself a favor and just watch it all the way through. It is quite long. It's over three hours in length. But uh, if you just sit it all, sit through all of it in one sitting and you'll feel like you're a member of this family after a while. You'll feel all of the warmth and all of the hardships that these people are experiencing. And that's hard to do to make everyday life seem like one of the most dramatic things imaginable. Wow. Mm. Well, that sounds really poignant. Mm. But I put it to you. What if Einstein was Australian? You asshole. <laughs> what if Einstein was Australian and loved beer? And figured out a way to electrify music. Uh, Young Einstein is a movie that was inescapable. If you were like young and watching TV in the late 80s, early 90s. It starred a comedian named Yahoo Sirius. Uh, and it is one of the weirdest premises for a comedy. It is a biopic of Albert Einstein that transposes him from his original country of origin to Australia... They never explain it. It's never like an alternate, like, ah, but what you didn't really know, it's like, no, no, no. In this universe, he was just born in Australia. He's just an Australian yeah. man. And the whole point is he and was... And it's a, fa- a fantasy Australia. There's like yeah. like fantasy creatures running around. Yeah. And the idea is, before Albert Einstein came along, beer didn't have bubbles in it. But what they knew is that beer would be better if it had bubbles in it. So, he invents a new formula which he calls, or everyone else around him calls, Emk. Mm. And Emk can put bubbles into beer. That is E equals MC squared. Yeah. So he moves to the big city to try to make it big as an inventor. He figures out how, like, how light moves and how, like, the way that light moves, because it has, like, like particles and curves. Mm. So it's like a rock, but it's also rolling. (laughs) And that leads to the invention of rock and roll. Did you know that Einstein invented rock and roll? Mm. It's true. Um, And and he uses it in a very unusual way in the film's climax. He defuses a nuclear bomb Mm. by playing rock and roll really hard. Um, I have nothing but affection for this stupid-ass movie. This movie is stupid ass, but it's weirdly clever because all of the stupid ways in which it like re like reframes Einstein's work is actually based off of at least a middle school understanding of how it actually works. Like it's not like they just sort of like threw it all together. It's like, no, no, we we know about the whole light and particles and waves things. We just thought it'd be funny if we turned that into a metaphor for rock and roll. Like it's yeah, actually yeah. It's, it's, it's 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 not it's not a stupid movie. It's a silly movie. It's, it's a and silly I like movie. It a lot. You you got to admire its complete audacity. We're going to make a, a bio, biography of Einstein, but we're not going to do. We're deliberately not going to do anything that's true. Yeah. And pretty. I, I, I pretty, would love to see. Like, it's like um, fucking phenomenal. Honestly. Something like Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Okay, Chuck Barris did all of those things, but also he was a spy. Yeah. Just like he claimed. Yeah. It's like that, but like way wackier. Um, yeah, I, I was never a fan of Yahoo. I've seen a couple other Yahoo series movies. I kind of liked them, mm. but I think uh, Young Einstein is is just delightful. Yeah. It's delightful. There's a couple of bits that are weirdly like kind of dark jokes. Uh, there's a bit with a pie that fortunately Aww. fortunately the, the never kit- comes to fruition. The, the kittens are safe. There's there's a bit where it looks like some kittens might be endangered, but they'll be fine. 
Uh, and other than that, the movie is really, really sweet. So I like it a lot. Please check it out. A warning: the kitten's gonna come out okay. Yeah, just that's not a warning. It's just don't worry about it. It's just you'll be fine. Just they'll look like they're in danger, but they're cool. They're kittens. Right. And, uh, and then lastly, but, but I'm very curious what you pick for your Z. Uh, I, I picked a William Castle film because I got to talk uh, about William Castle as often as freaking possible. Uh, in 1962, he made a film called Zots! Exclamation <laughs> point. <laughs> And and this is the time when I get to say, I know this is an incredibly stupid movie, but I love it anyway. Yay! Um, Zots is about a professor who finds uh, an ancient coin. I think it's an Aztec coin. And uh, it gives... And he's able to just sort of decipher the, the reading on it. And if you hold this coin and you point to somebody, they're in pain. You can torture them just by pointing at them. If you're holding it and you, and you just say the word Zots, time slows down. Oh! Temper or for them or temporarily around okay. you, and if you say How convenient, and if you hold it and say zots and point to somebody at the same time, they die. So he understands. So it's like has, so it's like the first death note, kind of. <laughs> yeah. So he has the ability to to point at it's, point at somebody, say zots, and kill him. It's and, a big old fantasy goober. But it, but it's a comedy film, like with a few slight tweaks, this could be like a Fred McMurray Disney film just yeah. in terms of its tone. Well, like the, William Castle had two modes trying mm. to scare adults and trying to entertain weird kids. Yeah. And it, I've never seen Zots, but it sounds like it's the latter. Yeah. Well, it, it, for a lot of it, it is really kind of like silly and there, you know, Jim Backus is in the movie and there's the bit where we get to see Jim Backus sort of speaking in slow motion is like kind of painful to look at. Mm. Uh, but when he starts realizing just sort of what kind of power this is and what kind of corruption this could do to his soul, you begin to see pretty quickly that this is a big metaphor for the bomb Mm -hmm. and how having the ability to cause a mass death very, very easily is something that you have to ethically concern yourself with and how if you do have that power and you can do it very, very easily, those questions aren't so easily asked. Mm. Uh, so there is actually something kind of poignant going on with with Zots, but not really. Uh, Margaret Dumont is also in this, playing a, the Margaret Dumont role. And uh, William Castle played with it. It was a Columbia film. And uh, when the Columbia logo comes up, William Castle is actually on screen and next to the Columbia logo, really small in his chair. Oh, weird. And he stands up and he says, Zots! <laughs> to to the Columbia logo, and the Columbia logo is like this, like comparatively, like this fifteen foot tall woman looks down and says, "Zots, what's that?" Like she comes Weird. to life and speaks to him. That's amazing. And then when they finally uh, finally zoom out, oh and they show gosh. the Columbia logo at the end. It says uh, the end, and then the Columbia logo says again, like right to the camera, "Zots all wink." Yeah, so there's wow. a, lot, a lot of really bizarre shit going on in this movie. I, I, I again, I, re- oh. I reiterate because we recently did Mr. Sardonicus mm. on episode zero. Uh, William Castle, mm. I have not seen nearly enough William Castle. <laughs> I'm amazed. Whoever kept William Castle from me as a kid, mm. I am mad at because that should have been my jam. Yeah. That yeah, dude yeah, made well, movies for me. Little kids should watch oh, William Castle God. movies. Uh, so good. And uh, there, was, of course, was a gimmick. The gimmick mm. was you get the Zots coin. That's it. You got a oh, souvenir. Well, it's not so it's, bad. It's not as much fun as, like, enhancing the experience in no. the theater with something. He, which, he started yeah. running out of ideas eventually. Real fast, like, it's, actually. It's, it's, but, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, but yeah, uh, you, you got the Zots coin. If you have a Zots coin, I'm sure it's really yeah. worth a lot somewhere. But yeah, um, but that, that's my Z. That's all 26. Nice. Okay. Well, my last one, and I really struggled with this because um, there's a few that I really, really love. But I was like, again, I'm trying not to pick the ones that will probably end up in my top 10 winning if we get to it. Uh, but I decided to go for an interesting piece of trivia that isn't, it's not hidden, but most people don't know about it. And every once in a while, you'll see, like, on Twitter or whatever, someone will be like, hey, I bet you can't name, like, this many good remakes. Hmm. And when that happens, one of the ones I always whip out as a remake that is one of the best movies ever made and has completely overshadowed the original where people forget that it exists. And that remake is Airplane. Mm. People forget this, or they don't know it. Airplane is a remake. Airplane is a very not just a spoof, but it's no, a re- it no, is a straight up remake. It has the the characters. The original film. The character's name is Ted Stryker. It is about uh, food poisoning on a plane, and this guy who is like traumatized after an incident in, in the war uh, has to uh, try to work his nerve up again and find a way to land the plane under adverse conditions. Uh, and many bits of dialogue from Airplane are taken verbatim. These are some of the biggest laugh lines in the movie. Mm. They are taken verbatim from the screenplay to the film Zero Hour, starring Dana Andrews from The Best Years of Our Lives. Uh, Sterling Hayden is in it as well. This is not a small film. Mm. It's actually a pretty big film. Um, It uh, was actually based on a TV movie called Flight Into Danger. uh, And... uh, it's a, one of the quintessential disaster movies. It's a movie that does imagine no air travel. It's something we do all the time. Well, what if it was incredibly harrowing? And it helped solidify the cliche of, oh no, the captain is incapacitated. Does anyone on this flight know how to land a plane? Which is, of course, like everyone's like worst travel nightmare. Um, or was until mm. worse ideas started put being put into people's heads. But um, it's... A film that has been absolutely transformed by context. In its original context, it's it's a perfectly effective, a little like sort of drably sincere, uh, uh, low budget thriller. Hmm. But since we've all seen Airplane a million times, when you watch Zero Hour, it looks like a rough sketch of a broad comedy, and a lot of scenes that were clearly intended to play terribly seriously become absolutely surreally funny because we know that we know the joke that the people who made airplane added after the line. Like I'm trying to remember if this is actually in the line, but I think the line "Surely you can't be serious" is in the movie. Mm. But they don't say "Don't don't call me Shirley." <laughs> like or like there's an entirely different type of flying altogether. And then it's an, it's it's an, an entirely, entirely different, different kind, kind of flying. flying, and everyone says it all together. These are not bits in Zero Hour. Yeah. <laughs> These are all oh, setups to jokes that would be completed like 20, 30 years later. The, the, the line of dialogue, uh, we need to find somebody back there who can not only fly this plane, but who didn't have fish for dinner, uh, is taken wholesale from Zero Hour. They actually yeah. say that in the movie. Yeah, it's, a, it's an impossibly silly line. Mm. And Zero Hour means it, and Airplane knows that it's funny. Uh, so if you've seen Airplane a million times, do yourself a favor, check out Zero Hour sometime. It's an efficient, relatively short, uh, uh, you know, disaster thriller. Uh, it's 81 minutes long, but, uh, it's weird and it's very illuminating and you'll gain a new appreciation for how like really brilliant Airplane is because they saw this crappy movie and they turned it into one of the best movies ever made. Uh, At least one of the best comedies anyway. 
the story goes that uh, Jim Abrams and the Zuckers um, had access to VCRs when they were still novel. And you could actually like tape things off of television. And what they would do is they would leave their uh, VCR running all night. And that's how they got a lot of the inspiration to do a lot of their gags for a, for airplane because they left it running all night. And that's when that's how they discovered zero hour. Mm. This wasn't like something they caught in theaters. Um, I don't know how true that is. I've heard this only like through secondhand sources, but that sounds right Mm -hmm. that they would stay up and they saw like all these late night commercials and kind of got a good sense as to how bizarre the media landscape really is when you sort of take it, you know, when you start mainlining it. Uh, so yeah, they, they saw this like kind of bizarre object that kind of drifted into their periphery through this weird VCR technology. And that they decided we, we got to do this. We got to make this movie cause it's ridiculous. So they did, they made the comedy version of the same movie. Yeah. And that's that, that was the birth of airplane. And that's it's seriously, it's one of the best comedies ever made. And it's from this just weirdo film. Anyway, that was a hell of a podcast. I'm not going to yeah, lie. That was no, a lot of fun. And no overlaps. I like that. In yeah. fact, you had a lot I haven't seen, so I need to go yeah, see and, some of those And vice myself. versa. And vice versa. Quite a few. Um, yeah, that was a that was a hoot. I'm glad we. this is fun because we got to talk about a lot of movies that we don't always get to. Mm. And it was all stuff that we're super supportive of, but it wasn't all like we have to narrow it down to the best ever. We were able to just sort of talk about whatever we felt yeah. like talking about. That was fun. Um, so uh, I want us to give a very special thank you once again uh, to Griswold Cobblepot for uh, basically uh, sponsoring this episode. Uh, and giving us this fun idea. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it, too. We hope you enjoy some of the movies. Uh, if you check them out uh, and you want to let us know what you thought, we would love to hear from you. It's one of my favorite things as a critic, is if someone takes me up on a recommendation Actually, and lets I, me know I, if they I, like it. Watches the film yeah, we recommend. I, I hope you like it, but even if you don't, if you let me know, I'll be like, okay, well, now I know people would react to it such a way. So uh, if you watch any of these movies, uh, you can either email us. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is our email address. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Uh, or you can talk to us on Twitter. Uh, the main show tw- uh, Twitter feed is at Critic Acclaim. And uh, I'm at William Bibiani. And I'm at Whitney Seibel. If you head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, you're going to get a lot of exclusive shows, uh, including shows about Star Trek, Batman. Uh, you can listen to our whole like hour-long episode about So Dear to My Heart, where we talk about the whole film and the whole history of it mm. on our podcast, Not on Disney+. Plus. We do commentary tracks. And you can also sponsor an episode of your critically acclaimed. Uh, so all of that is there at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And of course, soap. Uh, if you go to Etsy.com and you look for Salt Cat Soap, all one word, uh, you're going to find a, an Etsy store with handcrafted soaps designed by me and M. Lapis da Silva, mostly by M. Lapis da Silva. Uh, we're going to debut a whole bunch of new designs on Saturday, just in time for Mother's Day and Father's Day. Uh, so I hope you check it out. They're mm. fancy, they're nice. Uh, and uh, we're all very proud of them and we're very grateful to everyone who's already bought them and there have been really glowing reviews so far so we're really grateful for that so thank you once again and until next time you're critically acclaimed and so are you (laughs) 